It seems strange at first, but you got used to it. You find yourself the guest of honor any place you sit. I did what I could, you gave what you give. I cannot believe we have so much life left to live. Did you believe what you said about love? Tell me again what's best for us. Streets are crowded, happy fools. If you ever come and find me, baby, you'd be right beside me too. Hello and welcome to episode 1928 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Well, it's been a busy week in Lake Wobegon. Scott Boris punned, William Zostadio departed, crypto crashed, Twitter imploded, democracy survived, and Meg is missing today's episode. As mentioned, she has an off day today. So I am flying solo, but not for long. I'll be joined by three great guests today. I kind of keep a mental list. Hey, if I ever need to fill an episode if I need someone to join me. Here's some interesting people I'd really like to talk to. Filling in for the really interesting co-host I always get to talk to, so Meg will be back next time. I will, at the end of the episode, give you a little baseball news brief and also, as always, the pass blast. So I will timestamp everything in this episode, all the guest segments, the outro, etc. You can pick and choose or listen straight through, treat it like an all-you-can-eat buffet, or listen selectively. Choose your own adventure. So prior to that baseball news brief, I will be talking to Jeff Perlman, formerly of Sports Illustrated and ESPN, and the author of 10 books about sports, some of which you've almost certainly heard of, if not read. The Bad Guys won his book about the 86 Mets, Showtime, that's the basis of the HBO series Winning Time, and now he has a new book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, just came out recently. Never want to pass up a chance to talk about Bo, so we will discuss his life and career, and the process of writing about him, and some fun hypotheticals. Before Jeff, I will be talking to Ian Aru whom you may know as at no problem gambler on TikTok. So this is the guy you may have seen who does extremely in-depth investigations to identify the clips of sports games that are playing in the background of other shows and movies. Just, hey, I saw a game on the screen for one second in the background there. I wonder what game that was. Was that a real game? When was it from? He has an almost preternatural ability to detect and identify those clips. He does it for all sports, including baseball. He's done some really fun baseball ones. So we will explore his process and why these videos have caught on. He has almost a million followers on TikTok. He's become a big deal, and we'll talk about why. Just to give you a little taste, if you haven't seen this, here's the setup from one of his recent videos. In this episode of The Office, Jim is watching a baseball game at the dorm where Pam is going to school, and you first would think that this is easy to figure out because we can actually see the scoreboard. But after looking at it quickly, it becomes clear that they have edited the scoreboard onto this because it has the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Los Angeles Dodgers being the teams that are playing, but neither of those teams are the team that we see on the screen. And here's the payoff. But eventually, I stumbled onto this baseball card for Jeff Ballard, who wore number 39 in 1992. And looking at these pictures, you can see that he likes to wear long sleeve turtlenecks just like the guy in the video, which makes me think... This is our guy. And if you look at the catcher next to him and pause it at just the right time, you can make out the number 25 on his back, which would make that the Redbirds' Ed Fulton. So then, after combing through countless box scores, Fulton and Ballard only played one game together in Buffalo, and it was this game on June 2nd, 1992, that ended Redbirds 4, Bison 1. 
That video has more than 5 million views, so Ian and I will discuss how his viral magic happens. But first, and not least, I will be joined by James Wagner of the New York Times, primarily to talk about a great investigation he just did into why Dominican players seem to be overrepresented in positive PED tests in baseball, both in the majors and the minors. It's not just Fernando Tatis Jr. This is a widespread problem. The players who do test positive for steroids are disproportionately from the Dominican Republic, and James went down to the DR to figure out why that is and what can be done about it. So that's really interesting, but we will also talk about a great story that he did on why baseball players wear perfume and cologne on the field or in the dugout or during practice. This is apparently a pretty pervasive practice you would never know from afar. And of course, we will lead with Scott Boris, who had a huge wordplay week. Everyone sent us the Boris quotes. We saw the Boris quotes. Don't worry. So now I'll bring in James, and unbeknownst to him, we will start with Scott. All right, I am joined now by James Wagner, who has been covering baseball and will still cover some baseball, although he's switching beats. We will talk about that a bit for the New York Times. And he just did a great deep dive investigation into PED testing and the disproportionate number of positive tests among Dominican players. James, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. And yes, thank you for that uh, introduction. Yes, something is changing coming forward. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it. But uh, this this story, I think, kind of fits in that vein. Things I want to look further and deeper into. And yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I didn't prep you for this, but but can I ambush you for a second and just ask about Scott Boris quotes? <laughs> because yeah. this is a, a frequent topic of discussion on this podcast. We've been tracking Scott Boris's puns and wordplay and witticisms, if you can call them that, for years now. And we actually had him on the show to talk about it and kind of grill him about his process. <laughs> and this was the week where he held court at the GM meetings mm-hmm. and just really reached a higher gear, I think, potentially. I mean, he outdid himself here. And I'm just curious, as someone who covers baseball news for the New York Times and faces the decision of, do I want to quote Scott Boris puns in the paper of record, <laughs> which you did decide to do. <laughs> you did notice that. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I checked. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you you did note, I will quote here from the New York Times, <laughs> where this is enshrined forever. <laughs> Boris, also the agent for Brandon Nimmo and Taiwan Walker, had colorful ways of describing the demand for both players. For Nimmo, Boris used movie illusions, including a questionable pun. I appreciate that you <laughs> questioned the pun. There are a lot of teams in the free agent market that are in the waters for a center fielder. Whoever picks our guy, Groan, will be the lucky one to be finding Nimmo, Groan again. And then for Walker, Boris turned to a geographical play on words. He's one of the few players that's under 30 and he's had multiple 150 innings pitch seasons. So essentially, Taiwan is on an island. And I think the only question is who is willing Taipei? I thought that one so, was better. I thought the second one was a little better. Uh, the yeah. first one, the first one, I missed the Pixar reference. I had to yeah. go back and listen to it in real time. I didn't really hear that one. I just heard the. I could tell when he said "waters" that he was going to start setting up a Finding Nemo reference. Uh, yep. I did not pick up on the Pixar until I sat down to listen to the audio again. But I mean, I was like, you know, everyone obviously is like laughing because you know you roll your eyes because you know he's just like gearing up to. Yeah, you know, unload one of these again, and you know he tries to pa- he tries to pass it off as if he's like coming up with it in the spot. Right. But you know he has like a sheet of paper in front of him. Like I didn't really see the paper, but you know he kind of like stops and like 
funny you ask. And then he like, uh, like quickly glances at his sheet of paper and he's like, oh God, here, here we go. And so he, you could tell he was doing that in this case. I think at one point after he was rolling through these, he does these, but to be clear, I think you probably said this, he does these at the winter meetings too. So mm-hmm. it's kind of twice a year where he yeah. kind of preps for these. As he was rolling through these in Las Vegas and just going one after another. And at one point you could tell he was just trying to squeeze them in because he maybe hadn't been asked about X player or whatever, or a certain player or Y player. Like he was just going to, yeah. oh, I got did, these. I got to throw them in. Yeah, right. Did someone ask me about it? Uh, did someone say uh, James Paxton? Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <laughs> Funny you ask. It, uh, so I finally at one point was like, Scott, like, how do you keep a straight face while you do this? I just like interrupted yeah. him. And he was like, what are you talking about? This is a very serious moment. And of course. Just being sarcastic once again, he just, I think he rolled into the other ones that he had. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that was the first time I'd ever used his puns. I think it was just funny because the Mets, I think, you know, there's so many free agents. The story that they were in was about, you know, the Mets offseason, just a broad look at their offseason and how Jacob deGrom is kind of their their priority. But they have had so many free agents that included Brandon Nimmo and Taiwan Walker. It was an easy place, low in the story, to just quickly address those, those two guys. Mm-hmm. And so I just, just thought it was fun to just use them, yeah. use them in that moment. Yeah. But I think that might have been the first time in 11 years that I'd use one of his puns <laughs> like that. Yeah. So I think my track I record wondering. is okay. Right. I like, think it's the first time. Off the top of my head, it's the first time, I think. So. Yeah. And your editor wasn't like, do we need this? Or like the, the standards desk? <laughs> Are we actually putting Not, this in the paper? Because the motto is, you know, all the news that, that's fit to print. <laughs> so you've decided that, in fact, this Pixar Brandon Nimmo finding Nimmo print is fit to print and that it is preserved for posterity now in the paper of record. <laughs> Not much pushback from my editor. And as you can see, it was published. So, yeah. Yeah. It worked out okay. <laughs> maybe because I am so conservative when it comes to these right. other times, I think maybe in this case we, we thought it was okay. Right. And and he should hand out that little notepad that he has where he keeps track of this. It should be like a, a band that like gives out the set list after the concert. Someone takes it home and puts a picture on Twitter. Someone should should get the Boris set list for the, the puns. But I, I don't guess mind. you have a history. Yeah. I was okay. going to say, I don't mind professing my ignorance, but like I, I guess I missed his podcast appearance for you guys what yeah. did he say he tests them out on his like employees right and then he preps these for like weeks and weeks yeah he takes suggestions for sure from okay. from his staff like he doesn't have dedicated writers <laughs> as far as we could tell mm-hmm. people who punch this up for him but because he always does this he will get at least unsolicited suggestions and he definitely does give it some thought beforehand like I mean, you know when he said like this is serious to him it is like i feel like this <laughs> he loves this he, he relishes this so you notice it, more often than not he loves food i've always told him like scott you really love right because he loves food references he, yeah he, food that's an food easy metaphors. one to go to yeah. he brought up meat different yes. types of meat the filet mignon he brought that yeah. up again too he yep. brings the food up ones off food ones yes up and, often. and the nautical analogies yes. we've yes. noticed as well yeah yes. but i guess you have a history of having to cover this because he's had these wars with the wilpons in the past right and, and so, i used to cover the nationals too and there are so many nationals players that exactly right too, and so, so i'm used to there have been times where like you had to go to like sandy alderson for comment <laughs> on a boris quote and then like report <laughs> the sandy alderson retort to the boris quote like this is this is journalism this is the baseball <laughs> the number of food aisle metaphors that were just being worn into the ground at a certain point, though, were yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> yeah. 
I've heard yeah. many of them. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking of service journalism, Alden Gonzalez put together a, a reference of every Boris pun, which we will link to on our show page here because he was really <laughs> rolling. Like I, I feel almost responsible. Like we may have egged him on just by giving him the, the recognition for doing this. But really, he kind of owns baseball Twitter every day that he does this. And You and Sandy egged him on. Yeah, right. There were a, a couple that stood out because I, I was a little disappointed. I think Stephanie Epstein pointed out that he was recycling some material because Carlos Rodon is a free agent again as he was last year yeah. and Boris went back to the sculpture, the the Rodin, the thinker, yes. which he used last year. I guess he did allude to last year the thinking team chose Rodon, so maybe it was a, a conscious callback, but still. And Correa, like to, the Dior know. stuff, the Christian yeah. Dior stuff, that was Correa's own words that he basically just like expounded upon. So that's the thing. So that was a topic of conversation on this podcast when Correa came out with his analogy. He said, mm-hmm. when I go to the mall and I go to the Dior store, when I want something, I get it. I ask how much it costs and I buy it. If you really want something, you just go get it. I'm the product here. If they want my product, they've got to come get it. And then, yeah, Boris said, so you're a franchise brand. You're the Dior of defense. You're the Hermes of hitting. You're the Louis the Fifth of leadership. Or no, not Louis the Fifth, Louis Vuitton, I guess. Yeah, I'll just just put V on there. You're the the Prada of the postseason. It's a one-stop shop for a championship designer because we had a, a discussion back when Correa debuted that line about whether he was getting fed that by Boris or whether that was a Correa original, whether they workshopped those things together. So the plot thickens. I don't know whether this is confirmation that Boris came up with the Dior line or whether he took it from his client or what. I guess this doesn't confirm things either way. But Scott, the next guest on this podcast or not? (laughs) (laughs) He's welcome to to come back and (laughs) discuss his, uh, his process if he wants to. Anyway, you're not ostensibly here to talk about Scott Boris quotes. I just hijacked this discussion. But you did some real and valuable journalism and, and brought something to light, which I had been wondering about. And this really, I mean, it came to a lot of people's attention. I think a lot of people are aware of this trend. But I noticed back in late August that MLB, you know, sometimes they'll periodically sent a press release about the latest PED suspensions. And this one just so happened to be about six minor leaguers who were suspended. And all six of them were players in the Dominican Summer League. And five of the suspensions were for the same substance, stenozolol, if I'm saying that correctly, sort of Mm. one of these old school steroids. And this is not new, right? And so when I saw that, I thought I should really look into this or someone should look into this. I hope someone explains what is happening here. And of course, the Fernando Tatis Jr. news was, uh, was top of mind too. So... First of all, I guess, can you give me the numbers, the data on this, and just how disproportionate the representation of Dominican players in PD positives has been? Yes. And this is something that, you know, I think overall I'd had the same kind of hunch as you over the years of covering baseball. This is year, this year 11 for me. You notice when those weekly or, you know, every so often on Friday afternoon when those uh, press releases come out, press releases come out, um, you see like, where are these players from and you notice a lot of them are Latin American and you look closely. Uh, they come from the Dominican Republic and they're using steroids like the one you mentioned, which I, I still butcher the pronunciation or <laughs> yeah. boldenone who are like, which are two old steroids that really aren't as popular anymore. Mm-hmm. And you wonder like what's going on. So I think when Fernando Tatis Jr. was suspended, I think it raised a lot of questions as to like what is going on here. And you know, not just with his case, but 
another prime example, or this time a prominent player, as to why this trend keeps happening. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm a native Spanish speaker and, you know, covering Latinos in, in baseball has been something that's been part of like my beat for the last mm-hmm. many, many years. And so I, you know, went down to the Dominican Republic and took the time to, you know, try and figure out and kind of unfurl this kind of complicated question as to like what, you know, what this, why this is happening. And so since 2005, it's, there have been 1,308 positive tests among major and minor leaguers. So it just shows you how many players have been, I mean, sorry, positive cases, you know, because some guys are repeat offenders. So yeah, 1,300 positive cases, basically. According to the league, they do 30,000 tests, uh, drug tests around the world each year. 0.2% are positive. Half of those come from the Dominican Republic. So I think that's what, about 60 cases per year. 30 of those 60 come from the Dominican Republic, major and minor leagues. Most of them mm-hmm. in the minor leagues because they're, they're more minor leaguers and their drug testing policy is different. But so basically, yes, you, you know, that's not a lot per year. 0.2% isn't a lot. 0.1% right. is not a lot. But I think to see how disproportionately they're coming from one island and from players from one place. On opening day, there was about, you know, 10% of major leaguers were from the Dominican Republic. I think the, but the percentage, you know, by the end of the year, I think there are more than that and of Dominican re- players in the major leagues. And then it's believed to be more, I think people have, I don't know what estimate is, but you know, a lot of Dominican players are from the, a lot, a lot of minor leaguers are from the Dominican Republic. So you see that it's disproportionate and it's out of place. You know, why half of the cases come from one place, but only 10% of them in the major leagues are from this place. So what's going on here? Right. Yeah. And to be clear, it is a, a very small subset of all players and of Dominican players specifically who are testing positive. If the numbers that MLB cited to you are accurate, they said that the positive test rate for minor league players in the Dominican Republic has been less than 1% for 10 consecutive years. They say it's also down since they started to, to make some efforts in this area, which yeah. I'll ask you about. So it is still just, it's a small number. Number of players, but it's a, a very high proportion of the positive tests, which themselves, it's a small proportion of players. So it does stand out. So what did you learn about <laughs> why people think this is happening? How much time do you have? The why is the, still the most complicated <laughs> yeah. and you know multi-layered answer. So from any number of reasons from the system, the structure, you know, players down there, uh, compared to the United States, where you're drafted out of high school as early as, you know, 18 years old, U.S., Canada, Puerto Rico, down there, it's the internet, you know, the international amateur system is the free agents. So you can sign as young as 16. But, you know, as you know, based on the, the structure and the informal verbal agreements that occur, players are reaching verbal agreements maybe as young as 13, 14 year olds with teams. So mm-hmm. y- you look at the pressure that are on these kids to, you know, be good even by 12, 13, 14 years old, so they can reach a verbal agreement so that by the time they're 16, you know, they're, they formally put the pen to paper, but they've already been in verbal agreement with the team for years because they've been scouted so young. And if you look at the country predominantly, you know, look at the median income of the country, it's a poorer, less affluent country. Uh, obviously, they're allowed to reach an agreement with teams younger. So look at the pressures that are on teenage kids to help their family, help themselves economically. And so think about an easy way that they think, an easy way to help get out of the system. Steroids are an obvious example. So you look at the socioeconomic pressures like that. And these kids, in a lot of cases, do not finish secondary school. They leave secondary school so they can focus on baseball, so that they can help themselves and their families. And the pressures on them by the adults, whether it's their parents or their trainer, 
you know, like there's a trainer like quoted in the story in which he, you know, talks about it. It says it's the parents and the trainers themselves. It's not the kids. It's the adults that are pressuring kids to use steroids. Like a 12 year old might not know how to go find, you know, the steroids you mentioned, mm-hmm. but you know, it's an adult around them that is pressuring them or pushing them to do this. And the kids see that this is a way out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Other examples, you know, one of the people I've talked to that was very good in laying out kind of the, the factors is this doctor. His name is Milton Pinedo. He's the head of. Fedomede, which is basically the, you know, the, the Dominican Federation of Sports Medicine. They oversee the doping testing for the Olympic programs in the country. He says that this does not happen in the Olympic program. So this is specifically a baseball problem that, you know, the parents, the trainers are pushing this, you know, the, the culture of they believing that this is a quick fix out of poverty to help these kids get out of the situation they're in when really it's not the way to go. He also pointed to the second factor, which was the, the ease of which you can find these uh, substances these banned substances that you can find them in the and there in the Dominican Republic, say, compared to the United States. Uh, so you can go into, say, a pharmacy down there, and you don't need a prescription to get an antibiotic, something mm-hmm. that you would need in the United States, even to get an antibiotic. But you can go to the pharmacy, or you can easily find uh, steroids, something that would get you in trouble in MLB's testing program. You can find that so much easier down there. Mm-hmm. And the other third factor he mentioned was education too. If the parents and maybe down to the kids are not as well educated, they can't differentiate between, he says, into like figuring out the steroids, like that this is not actually going to help you. And Henry Mejia is a pitcher mm-hmm. that I talked to in the story. He's the most suspended player of all time. He got suspended three times. The third time was a permanent ban, which he got eventually reversed. Henry told me that once he had consumed steroids, it didn't help him throw harder, that he didn't notice a difference in his velocity. And in that experience, he learned that steroids were not like a quick fix for him. At least He claims he did not use it purposefully. Right. But either way, once he had it in his system, he claims it did not help his velocity, which goes to the point that I think that people see it as a quick fix, but ultimately it might learn it is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess if, if you actually weren't using it on purpose and consistently, and it was just a, a tainted substance that you took, then yeah. I guess that probably wouldn't be conclusive either way about mm-hmm. whether it would help you, right? I mean, if it's you know not something you're, you're dosing regularly under someone's supervision, it's just uh, you took some bad B12 shot or whatever, which is what he said, right? Then yeah. I guess you probably wouldn't really expect him to suddenly gain miles per hour from, from that one thing if yeah. that was actually what happened. But I guess, is there any way to tell, there's no conclusive way, I'm sure, but how much of the problem is kids actually just being given these things or the accidental dosing, which is either way is is not good, obviously, but the solution would be different for each of those problems, right, and those potential causes. And, you know, there's something extra sort of yeah. nefarious and unsavory about the idea of, of kids being dosed with these things at an age where one would imagine there there could potentially be some side effects down the road. It's hard to tell without knowing like everyone's individual case, but I think overall, like say, let's go to minor leagues, for example, they have a minor league drug policy and the major leaguers have a major league drug policy that's collectively bargained with the union. They know the rules, whether you took it on purpose or by accident ultimately is your responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's the case, I think, in the Tatis case, you know, him claiming he did not use it on purpose. He had something else, regardless whether he did it on purpose or not. It's his responsibility. The same with Henry Mejia in this case, I think. You know, scouts might tell you they think that the drug problem is a serious problem. Look at the, you know, among amateurs before they enter the minor league system. Look at the international draft. Part of the reason why MLB claims they wanted the international draft, uh, they failed. The, the players union did not approve it. 
But one of the reasons MLB wanted it was they claimed they wanted this was a way they think could help clean up corruption and this uh, drug use uh, to give a more orderly structure to what's going on. This system that people have called the Wild West, where 12 year olds are reaching verbal agreements to create a more structured system. And MLB has started this thing called the Trainers Program in 2018, where they go around, you know, I think they have 50 some trainers in this program where trainers voluntarily agree to join their program down there. And they give they get an MLB stamp of approval if MLB is given permission to test their players. So that way, I think to kind of give more security and give the MLB stamp of approval onto their players and the trainer, so the trainer can tell kids like, "Look, we run an MLB approved program," and like can tell the teams that want to sign those kids, "Hey, look, we're above board. MLB has approved us." But anyone can be a trainer down there, and not everyone has to be part of that program. So it just goes to the larger question of like, how can someone kind of police all of this and you wonder like what role does the Dominican government have in this too because these are their own citizens they are they are their own children the trainers are the citizens too like what can they do this and the commissioner of baseball down there said that she's trying to get government approval down there to get more resources to you know both monitor and to discipline the trainers down there because you Ben could be a trainer down there if you wanted to uh, they call mm-hmm. them buscones too you're like mm-hmm. part trainer part agent where you find a kid a young kid, you start training them, you start paying for their development, you start paying for their food, and then you take a huge cut, maybe up to 40-50% when they sign with the team. So mm-hmm. who will police this system? So and just to be clear, like, you know, guys like Tatis who already were in the majors already had their three hundred million dollar contract. He's not under those same pressures of say trying to break it out of poverty. You know, his dad was a major leaguer. Mm-hmm. He already had his contract. You wonder like why was he like, why was this right. stuff in his system, whether he yeah. used it on purpose or did not use it on purpose, like he claims, yes. Or someone like, you know, Robinson Cano, right, who's, you know, already had a huge contract and is on his way to the Hall of Fame. It's like, why, you know, <laughs> right. Without having each of those guys tell me why, I mean, Tatis claims, again, that he did not use this on purpose and Cano has not really talked about why. He's just mm-hmm. said, he's just apologized for using it. There is a culture, I think some people have said in the story, culture of that's what you grew up around. Uh, maybe it continues. Or you, you know, sort of turns around a pride that you want to continue performing, or you have an injury that you don't want to talk about, or you're trying to recover from, that you think this will help you and be so readily available around you, you turn to that. Or yeah, pride that you want to keep performing. Or yes, like you see, like in Mejia's case, like, you know, Henry did not, like, he already was an established closer in the major leagues. Like, why did he need this? And, you know, he even referenced things like, yeah, like wanting to get that contract because you see someone else around you get that contract. Uh, even though you are in the majors, you don't have that twenty million dollar contract. You're not, you don't have that security. Maybe you're trying to hope, hopefully, hopefully you're trying to go for that. So, and I think I wanted to make sure it was clear. Like, it's not like I think some people are wondering like why these guys are caught. And I think this is part of the issue is the steroids that are being used. Again, I'm going to butcher this the the name, but Baldanone <laughs> and Stanozolo, those two steroids that are show up often in the drug testing results are just older anabolic steroids that, you know, Victor Conti Jr. and other people have told me, he is of Balco fame, if you remember, that those are just easy to find. Like, those steroids are readily available, obviously, and they're just easy to find in your system when you test. It's not like other players have not tried to use designer things that don't get them caught. You've seen those cases. American players have been caught. Uh, U.S. players have been caught for using steroids. Players from other countries have been too. I guess in this case, Dominican players using those two readily available steroids to them in their country those steroids are just easy to find. They're getting caught easier, faster, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. And with Tatis's explanation and, and the New York Times headline about this in a story that was not by you was Tatis's explanation stretch common sense, experts say, <laughs> which I think was kind of a consensus opinion at that time, just because he was claiming to have used a, a medication for ringworm initially. And a lot of people questioned whether that would have even been an applicable medication to use for ringworm, which does not mean that he couldn't have used it anyway, mistakenly or, or ill-advisedly. And I don't think he was even in the DR at the time, as I recall, but maybe he was brought the medication by his parents or something was the explanation. And so I guess that would be a a convenient excuse because there is truth to the idea that there can be traces of these substances in over-the-counter medication that you can get down there. And so you could just seize on that as, oh, I got caught. I can just say it was accidental and it will be somewhat plausible or It could be somewhat plausible, I guess, but either way, it's like if you're established like Tatis, I mean, if you're a minor leaguer, you can't necessarily afford to import some reliable medication or some substance that you know is on the approved list. Maybe you have to cut corners and and use what you can, but if you're Fernando Tatis Jr., just the idea of, of using anything from there, just given this history and track record, that's what you have to kind of question. And the two things I was going to say about that, like you brought up, great point. Like I think you know, it's part of MLB's programs. It's, it's part of why they they claim they've gotten you know the percentage of of minor leaguers in the Dominican down from like six percent down to under one percent testing positive. Programs to teach the kids and tell them and to really really drive home the point. And I think Nelson Cruz addressed like you know he, those programs have made a difference. Telling the kids to be more careful, and unfortunately the players in the Dominican Republic have to be more careful if this stuff is more readily available around them. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, what is what is in their body is their responsibility, on purpose or by accident. If you b- believe that, and I think that's where like you just you have to, if you're a team, not to give them advice, but if you're a team and you have your players, if they get sick, like in Henry Mejia's case, if, you know, if he claims it was because when he was sick or whatever the case may be with Tatis claiming that he had ringworm and needed something to address it, perhaps you should be calling your team, the team's trainers, the team's medical staff, hey, what can you help me with, rather than on your own or whatever it is, going to someone else to get a B12 shot. Maybe that if you have like a stomach bug and you've lost weight and you want to recover, perhaps don't go to the pharmacy or use what's in your fridge or ask your buddy or your brother to help you out with something. Go to your trainer, uh, the team's trainer, even if you're a minor leaguer or a major leaguer, should be people around you if you're in the major leagues, especially the support staff around you. But right. have someone maybe vouch for this is the medical way to do this, something that's like the NSF approved medicine or, or supplement to, to recover from what you have. Mm-hmm. Are you optimistic at all that this might change for whatever reason? We know that there's not going to be an international draft imminently, but you've brought light to this. It seems like people are picking up on it. It's obviously known in the area. So I wonder whether you have hope here or whether there's anything else that you want to mention that we haven't touched on that uh, is a factor. I think like uh, like I mentioned the doctor that had talked about, like, you know, the problems down there, Dr. Pinedo, he wants political willpower to change. He thinks that the government does need to step in and change, like, the restrictions on these substances. I mean, whether you think that will happen, I think remains to be seen because, I mean, Major League Baseball is a huge, important driver to the economy, to the society down there. Uh, so that is obviously a huge factor. And I think, you know, we'll see whether the Dominican government will step in and, like, maybe you know, perhaps through the commissioner of baseball, Junior Naboa, former player, hoping and waiting for uh, the resources and power kind of to 
police the trainers, see if that happens. And then in five years to see when the next CBA is up, whether the international draft will come around then. I think what stood out to me, this most recent round of international draft negotiations was that from I heard from more trainers than I first expected, perhaps, that they were in favor of the draft. Whether they saw the writing on the wall in terms of this coming down, you know, in the, the, the well of support for the future or seeing MLB really pushing hard to get this done. I was surprised by how many trainers did say they were in favor of it. So we'll see in five years if that kind of change continues to happen and whether that international draft will get put in place in five years. I mean, some people have, some critics have said that, you know, players will, like the temptations to still use steroids will still be there, whether there's a draft or not, because you still want to get, you know, selected high. You still want to throw hard. You want to hit hard, hit the ball far. Uh, the pressures will still be there, whether there's a draft or not, to use steroids. So I think seeing the rate, the percentage of which stuff has gone down is encouraging, but to still see it concentrated even now, given all the improvements, I think it's alarmed some people as you've seen. So I don't know. There's mm-hmm. a lot of different things that could change. We'll see how the international draft, whether the Dominican government steps in to do something about this, because ultimately just through education you've seen has made a difference, but that alone might not solve this. The substance is there just being too readily available. Um, the structure itself of which kid in which kids are developed and acquired uh, through the system and like sorry, enter the professional system remains like those remain challenges for teams and for them down there. So we started this conversation with a fairly frivolous question. I want to end with one also. So you are switching beats starting next year. You're going to become an international sports correspondent still for the Times, but based in Mexico City and focused on Latin America. So you will be off the the full-time baseball beat, although obviously you'll still have some opportunities to cover baseball there. But what we are losing in your leaving the baseball beat is not only reporting like the kind you did in this PD story, but also the kind you did in another story about an aspect of baseball where perhaps Dominican players are overrepresented, which <laughs> is... Guessing. Perfume? Perfume <laughs> <Yeah>. and cologne? <laughs> I knew so it. you wrote this, this great story, and this is just perfect story because this was back in May and this just (laughs) brought to light something that no one would know who doesn't have the access, right? Because you cannot tell this from afar. You can't tell watching on TV what players smell like. (laughs) You can maybe imagine it, but you brought us into the dugout in the clubhouse here and you (laughs) informed everyone that baseball players, big fans of perfume and cologne. So tell me about the story and tell me how you came to write the story. Was it just that you followed your nose and you noticed that a lot of baseball players had strong scents? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I will say just, I would not, you know, discredit this story as being service journalism. There is one baseball executive that told me after reading this story, does one or two sprays of cologne every day now since. So (laughs) I would call this service journalism as well. So in this case, yes, I just followed my nose. I mean, like, other stories I've written, I followed my stomach, just writing food about food mm-hmm. and baseball. And this one was following my nose. And I think just, you know, all these years of covering baseball players and noticing this trend, but the light bulb did not really go off until last World Series when the Astros, you know, lost to the Atlanta Braves. Framber Valdez, I remember like just, I could smell him from the other end of the dugout and, uh, speaking Spanish and just, you know, shooting the breeze with him, being like, Framber, like, why do you smell so strongly of cologne? And he was, I was like, what do you, cause his nickname is La Grasa. Uh, which kind of means like, you know, he's going to style his flow, mm-hmm. basically what it comes down to. And so he, you know, was explaining to me, oh, yeah, you, I've got a I've got a cologne perfume for this. I've got one for that. And I've got uh, another one for that. And I was like, what? 
And so I remember other players I'd met and covered back in the day, and I used to cover the Nationals a long time ago, Rafael Soriano, the closer on the team, another Dominican. He kind of did one or two sprays before he even went out to shag, you know, fly balls during BP. And I was like, what? <laughs> Fernando Abad, I think, too, might have done it, too. And I was just like, you're practicing. Like, what do you need cologne for that? <laughs> and then even then, what do you need cologne for during the game? Like, what? Yeah. you're on the mound by yourself. Who's going to smell you, man? Like, so <laughs> I remember I finally let the light bulb went off one last year, and like, all these stories kind of that I had amassed in my mind just kind of coalesced. And I was like, oh, I need to turn this into a story. So uh just spent, like, spring training and early part of the season finally just putting all those stories together and going around and asking players, you know, what they use, how often they use it. <laughs> it sounds so stupid. But they they laughed so much. I laughed so much writing this story and reporting this story. Just the yeah. the silly, it seemed frivolous, but the silly uh, reasons as to why these guys use certain colognes on certain days. Like Framber has a cologne, the strong one that he uses on start days. He has a less strong one that he uses on his day, the four games in between, sitting in the dugout, and he's got a strong one for going out with the does boys he, on the team. Does he wear a very strong one on his start day so that no one will talk to him, which is another tradition? No, <laughs> no, no one, not no one wants to be there. Framber is like, too uh, <laughs> excitable, too enthusiastic to not right. talk to people. He's kind of in yeah. everyone's face and high-fiving yeah. and stuff. So, And even, like, I thought it was hilarious, just randomly, Jordan Romano, the closer of the Blue Jays, he's a Canadian pitcher, you know, not Dominican. He had picked up this tradition from a Dominican teammate and then started doing it himself. And here's a dude from Ontario, Canada, who has, he has a cologne for uses when, if I remember clearly, when things are, he's feeling good, a cologne he needs when the team is, needs kind of to break out of a rut. So he sprays on his, he says he sprays on the boys when he needs to, when they need to like to snap out of it too. So it's kind of like, I was like, holy cow, like there's, there's so much thought into this. Baseball players are very superstitious, have a lot of traditions. And so I think this kind of spoke to that and just adds kind of another element the, uh, that, the smell, I think, to the experience because, yeah, and fans, readers who don't get to be down there on the field and get to see what normally smells like dirt and grass and sweat. There's also this other scent kind of through the dugouts and through the hallways and through the clubhouses too. So yeah, that's kind of a long-winded way explaining like just the funny anecdotes. And I think just added just that other kind of spice to basically the game that I think maybe you wouldn't see otherwise. And yeah, I laughed so much doing that story. And I think just, it adds a lot of, you know, it speaks to both the cultural element too, though. In Latin America, I don't know other cultures as well, but in Latin American culture, the perfume and cologne is pretty dominant, I find. And so the players, I think, just an extension of that. And to see their teammates pick up on their traditions was, was really funny too. Yeah. Well, glad you sniffed out that story. And I, I don't know when the, the nomination windows close, but get that in best American sports writing. If not Pulitzer, that's, it's gotta be something. I smelled and, that pun coming from a long, yeah, long uh, while away. Yeah, even Boris would look down on that one probably would turn up his nose, would, oh, would sniff disapprovingly, oh, <laughs> but hopefully there's no uh, bold and own in, in the cologne. That would be a, an unfortunate just <laughs> confluence of, of your two stories here, but I haven't heard of that happening. So that's probably not a factor. You did not mention that as a factor in your PD reporting. So there's still think, time. There's still yeah, time. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, best of luck on the new beat when it starts and we will miss you on the baseball beat, but people can still follow James at the times and on Twitter, as long as Twitter still exists at by James Wagner. Thank you, James. Thanks, man. Thanks, Ben.
Okay, thanks to James, and I should note that almost immediately after we got off the call, I got another Friday news dump email from MLB press release, three minor league players suspended, two of the three Dominican summer league players suspended for old school steroids. And thank you to James for humoring me with my Boris questions. And if you haven't seen some of these Boris quotes, you gotta see them. I will just read you a couple. So this is the one that James referenced. The free agent market is very much a carnivore's market. There are many grades available. For owner's menus, those are more leaning to filet mignon and wagyu than they are to the hamburger and vegan. Sure, that completely clears it up. And this one is kind of a mixed metaphor. This is on Xander Bogarts. This is the first time teams have had a chance to sign the X-Man. I think they're finding it to be a marvel opportunity. Xander has a very famous uncle, Humphrey, and he certainly left in his memoirs, Kid, there's going to be a lot of teams looking at you. Just so much going on there. The implication that Xander Bogart's uncle is Humphrey Bogart. Just wow, that is a busy one. And then I like the little lightning round at the end. So this is on Sean Manaya. Man, I uh, need a left-handed pitcher like that. These are like knock-knock joke level. This is on Matthew Boyd. It's simply unavoidable that I need a guy like that. Josh Bell, he just has all the bells and whistles. Michael Conforto, he's kind of the return of the mic, the hit of free agency. And lastly, on Jerickson Profar, Profar, so good. I just don't know what to say. If you want more of this, just check out Scott on Effectively Wild on episode 1903. And now let's take a quick break, and I'll be right back with Ian Arujo of At No Problem Gambler on TikTok, who does deep dive investigations into sports games that appear in the background on screens in other media. Now this is serious journalism. Don't touch that dial. If it really takes that long to work out, I'm afraid we'll be long gone. But we'll know just where to start if we look real close. Think you can't see the way it is, but welcome to the party. Well, I am joined now by the internet's foremost sleuth in the extremely specific niche of background sports footage identification. You may know him on TikTok as at No Problem Gambler. His real name is Ian Arujo, and he joins me now. Ian, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. So I knew I was going to talk to you today, and I went to the baseball subreddit this morning. And it just so happened as I was browsing that one of the most popular posts was very much in the genre of what you do. (laughs) So someone posted on their user SBB618. The post was, what game is Robert De Niro watching in The Irishman? And (sighs) then they went through the full investigation. I think this was actually a repost. And they concluded that it was the Phillies-Mets game on September 22nd, 1996. I've not verified that myself. That is not at No Problem Gambler certified. (laughs) But (laughs) the fact that I just happened to come across that in the wild. Now, for all I know, that was inspired by the kind of content that you have been creating. But... As I mentioned to you, I I had done something similar almost 10 years ago now looking at a a background scene in the TV show Elementary and just wanted to know, I wonder what game that is. So it seems like this speaks to some sort of strange 
<laughs> semi-universal human desire. Maybe it's just a testament to the curiosity of our species that we just see something and we want to know what it is. How do you explain what motivated you and what motivates everyone who is just riveted by what you do? Why do we care? <laughs> Why right. do we care? So I was much like you and you opened this up by saying this very niche thing, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's you, like- You've got a million followers. That, so just That's- about. Right. And that's why, like, I had that account for, you know, over a year and a half before I even did this, because I've been doing these puzzles, I like to call them, for probably a decade now. And it was just a joke between me and a couple friends. You know, mm -hmm. it was like, why would other people care? Because if you just <laughs> say it to someone, I think it doesn't give the same effect, right? Like, if you were just to say, like, oh, there's a whatever game in the background of a Marvel movie, nobody cares. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you, it's showing all the steps, I think, is the biggest part. Right. Yeah. It's it's the going down the, the rabbit hole and going through all of those things. And like you said, I think it's just curiosity. Right. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and right. It, I mean, you could easily see that and just write it off and not even notice. I mean, most people do. To yeah. Be that, clear. <laughs> I, I <laughs> <But> mean, <laughs> like the reason some of these things are so obscure. Right. Like some of the games being played is because. The producers or whoever chooses those things goes, no one is going to look at this. This is not right. the purpose of, you know, putting it in the show. It's just to like a decoration, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And often you'll find out that it's not actually from just one thing or it's right. some kind of mashup or it's not period accurate. And again, it's because uh, they figured no one would notice and no one would care. And then you come along <laughs> and yeah, right. expose it to the world. And it turns out that actually a lot of people care. So. When this was just you and your friends, just the group chat or whatever, right. what was the origin story? What was your, your first deep dive or the one that really got you hooked on, on doing this kind of thing? The first one I remember doing was, you know, the TV show Monk? Yeah. Mm -hmm. there, there is a Tony episode. Shalhoub. That's right. right. Uh, they go to a football game and I think they're tailgating and uh, they flash to a TV at the tailgate. And uh, I wondered, oh, well, what football game is that? Because I didn't recognize any of the logos or anything. And uh, turns out it's a USFL game and something doing this enough. Uh, USFL games must just be like super cheap to <laughs> use because they're everywhere. I don't even do them on my you know videos anymore because it's just such a layup for me now because it's like, <laughs> I've seen this game in, you know, a hundred different shows. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's the origins of it. And then the origin for my TikTok doing those is I had just watched uh, Spider-Man No Way or yeah, No Way Home. And, you know, Daredevil shows up in that movie. And so I went home and rewatched Daredevil <laughs> and just out of the, you know, out of the left corner of the screen, you can see a hockey game going on. And I thought, oh, well, here comes another one. And uh, like you said, in the group chat, I went and I was like, I figured this one out. And they're like, oh, you should post that. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's that's how that started. So is TikTok integral to to your taking this public then? I mean, if, if this had been prior to TikTok, I mean, I guess it was when you were just in the group chat. Would you have thought, I'll put this on Twitter or I'll put this on wherever else someone might have hosted a video? Did you need something like TikTok to come along to be the perfect venue for this kind of video? Yeah, I mean, I had never done videos prior to TikTok. Like, I'm not a, you know, I love sports media and stuff like that. I just was never in front of the camera 
or mm -hmm. even on the microphone. So TikTok was my first like dive into that. And all the videos I did prior to these were kind of the uh, warm up, I would say, to what it would eventually become. But I think the speed of TikTok really works for these videos because it is kind of chaotic. And, you know, I'm trying to show all the steps in the shortest amount of time. And right. I think it works really well for the type of video that it is. Are you a, a puzzle person in general? I mean, are you doing crosswords and Sudoku or whatever else? Like, does your mind just, just thrive on puzzle solving? Yes. Yes and no. I, I think the the traditional puzzle, I don't, you know, I don't find myself, you know, sitting in front and doing crosswords and stuff. But, you know, solving problems and trivia and all of those things, that's the stuff that I like is the, mm. uh, the more uh, applicable to, you know, real life things. Mm -hmm. And do you consider yourself to be a, an especially perceptive person in terms of just noticing things that are going on around you, fine details? Because I think really the, the thrill of it when you first start watching your videos, it seems like almost a, a Sherlock Holmes style deduction, you know, where he'll just uh, look at, oh, your shoe left this imprint and therefore that's where you were, right? All of these little clues that no one is actually noticing and he's able to extrapolate all of these things about you. And that's fiction, but this is in real life. So are you very observant or is this just a sort of your superpower, this very specific superpower? Right. Yeah. Like, I think it's a mix of both. Like, I would say I'm observant, but it's also like if you stare at something for long enough, you pick up on things. And if you do it often enough, uh, you start like being able to like deduce things just by looking at them. Right. Right. And so. It's a mix of doing it often enough and having a base. Like, I, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of every sport. It's impossible. But having the base of knowledge, I think, is, you know, the, the biggest help for myself. Yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, the footage that you're looking at is available to, to everyone, right? Everyone can see the same thing that you're seeing. It's not like you're working some secret sources or something. I mean, you know, when you did a, an interview in a story with Stephen Nesbitt for The Athletic and you were working on one, then Stephen reached out to people and was, you know, working sources and trying to get inside info and everything. But generally, you're just looking at what's there and anyone could, in theory, do that. And yet everyone is completely shocked and bewildered that you're able to mine this information from the same thing that they're seeing. So it's, it's almost like some sort of a sleight of hand or, or parlor trick or something where it's right. like it's right out there in the open and yet everyone else seems to be missing these things. Right. And I have people on both sides saying either I'm, you know, I have these deep Hollywood connections and <laughs> music connection, all these things, or I have people telling me, no, you are wrong. And it's like, mm -hmm. how can I be both of these things? Mm -hmm. And right. well, and the truth is I'm neither, right? It's <laughs> like, there's no trick about it. It's just, you know, if you look at something long enough, if you know what to look for, all of those things, you know, I truly believe anyone probably could do it. It's just like, why would you, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> I think about it all the time. Like my wife even says, like, she doesn't get it. You know, she mm -hmm. just like, she's like, I don't understand. <laughs> You know, and it's like, it's fair. Like, why do people do it? And why are people interested? I have no idea. But, you know, if I'm interested, then, you know, other people might be too. And that's how it works. 
have you been wrong? Be- because there's sometimes where it's it's conclusive. You know, you can match up the exact footage, and it's just beyond all doubt. And then there are other times where maybe it's you know the the preponderance of the evidence or something. Like you know, you can identify it, but maybe the full footage from that game isn't available. That kind of thing. And so you make a, a very solid guess, but not completely confirmed. So has there been a time when you've put something out there and you've learned subsequently that you? missed something or incorrectly identified something no i I have some that are like not confirmed right like Mm -hmm. there are some that i just will probably never know or the one that sticks out to me is the uh marvel show falcon and the winter soldier and i Mm -hmm. i concluded that it was an australian like soccer game and i i still to this day have no idea i had one guy reach out to me saying that he thinks i got the stadium right but he has no idea the game because it is that obscure and he's like i don't even know if they record those games like he doesn't so it's like those things i'm not sure but that's with from all of the research that i've done that's what you know makes the most sense to me right and there's no one you know coming up with a better solution so to me those are there are some that I'll say this. I don't usually put out a video if I'm not 90% sure or above. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's like there are, there are some that I've done and I've gone down the rabbit hole, man. Like I I have done (laughs) everything. I'll tell you this. I've currently, I mean, I've been, I should, I shouldn't say currently because it's like literally been months at this point. (laughs) I'm doing one about a cricket match in Miss Marvel the mm-hmm. the Disney Plus show and I think I have it down to five games and to say that I have explored every option would be an understatement <laughs> yeah I should say five teams not five games but mm-hmm. there's no way like I've reached out to every player every you know like that I think it could be and there's just no one that could even tell me so it's like if people who might have even been there are telling me that like, I have no idea. Right. It's like, how am I going to figure this out? But I will say, I, I'm not giving up on that. It's still in my Word document, you know, just sitting there for hopefully one day someone responds and goes, hey, I remembered this or something. Yeah. Well, it's good that you have high standards just <laughs> so people can be confident if you call it. Yeah, <laughs> that, right. That it's, it's not just a theory. It's uh, been backed up. So what is one, because you have this format now essentially where people will challenge you, right? And they'll mm-hmm. be like, there's no way that you can find this. And of course, they're hoping that you can. Right. But that's the format now of the, the requests for your investigation. So what's one where even you doubted yourself that you didn't think on first viewing or 10th viewing even that there was enough for you to go on that you could actually identify it and then somehow you did the one that i am most proud of is from the video game detroit become human i found (laughs) a military recreational league game the specific game and i don't think i'll ever top that and i have now convinced myself there's not a hockey game in the world that i couldn't find Honestly, like that is as obscure as it gets. But when I saw it, I had no idea what to even go on. That that one sticks out to me. The Australian soccer one also sticks out to me. But that one I didn't have confirmed. Like I went to the Military Hockey League's Facebook page and found the actual pictures from the game. Like that's that's as concrete as it gets, right? And yeah. uh, I will say I'm working on one now. 
not the cricket one. I, I'm not sure if that one will ever happen. I'm working on one now that I'm like 99% sure on that I'm pretty I'm pretty proud of as well. Where I uh, it is just a blurry mess of <laughs> of a screen, but I kind of have deciphered enough. Yeah, and I imagine it's it's much easier if you know more about the sport. You've done all different sports, but we we probably don't even realize just like if we have some history, if we grew up watching something, you know so much without even thinking about how much you know just the Mm -hmm. specialized knowledge you have of that sport like you can just instantly recognize oh this is from that era probably this we can narrow it down to these teams that have that color uniform oh i can see a little bit of the the ballpark or the stadium in the background and i know where that's from like anyone could in theory research those things but if you hadn't been actually watching that sport for a large part of your life like you right. have to do a whole lot of legwork just to get to that point where someone who is a fan and, and a committed viewer would yeah. just be there to start so you know what's I guess the one where you were most out of your depth I mean if you're doing cricket or Australian soccer or something I guess that qualifies but one where you've actually I mean I guess the hockey example you just gave it's not like you had you know personal right. yeah. necessarily. So, so that that's the that's the problem that I'm kind of running into to now right is it's like a daredevil it's like your next trick has to be better than the last <laughs> Top right every time, yeah. it's like you know the next one has to be blurry or, or a sport that I don't know otherwise I feel like my videos aren't interesting like I don't know how many times I've had people request this game from Spongebob it's a USFL game you can see it very clearly on the screen I don't want to do that <laughs> yeah. and even and even like I struggle to do ones that are like the major league sports and stuff like that it's like to me i look at that and it takes me you know 10 minutes maybe to like Mm -hmm. pin down the game it's like i want something that i am slaving over and like right i'm in my bed thinking about until you know (laughs) midnight right and that's what Mm -hmm. i want yeah what's the longest that you've spent on one that has been published that got distilled down to a two-minute video or whatever that just totally undersold how much labor and time went into the research process. I would say actually the one that me and Steven worked on, the the Office (laughs) one, that one sticks out. But to me, that one uh, was different because I was doing it alongside him. And I don't don't know if it's the same for you, but, you know, uh, working with the media outlets, it's like some things work slowly and some mm-hmm. things that, you know, I was waiting for him to do the story and I still wanted it to be entertaining for him as well. That's the one that sticks out that took a long time. And I actually, I have a lot of people that ask me how long these things take, right? And there's not a clear answer, right? Because right. like like what I said is like, you know, I just think about it at random times or I'm just like looking at, you know, articles or whatever. And it's like over a three period, like three day period or you know, it, it just it changes for each video so much. But I mean, the the cricket one is definitely the one that I've spent the most time on. And it's also like we were just talking about, it's like the one that I'm least familiar with. So that kind of makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Do you find that any particular sport is overrepresented in these things? Because I have found that in actual scenes, so not just in the background, but where you're supposed to notice, (laughs) that I think baseball is overrepresented. I might be biased because I've covered baseball and so I'm more likely to notice baseball. But with these background scenes where it's just it's supposed to be Mm -hmm. background, 
I don't know that that's the case. And maybe if it's that football is popular, so you put football on, or there's just an overrepresentation of USFL footage, and so it's right. just football. Like, yeah. do you find that there is a certain sport that is over or underrepresented relative to its popularity? Let's say. I would say that given hockey's, uh, you know, spot in the American mm-hmm. Mount Rushmore of sports, mm-hmm. I think that one's overrepresented. I would say. Like it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. I almost have to like filter out, right? Because I don't want to do the same sport over and over again, right? So it's like I love doing the hockey ones. That's probably the ones I'm most comfortable with. So I see those the most. And I think it's a lot what you said, though, the USFL, you know, whatever's cheapest and whatever yeah. looks. But I will say USFL 10 to 15 years ago, they're they're not popping up as much because what USFL looked like in the 80s is not what football looks like right. now, yeah. right? So you can't just put it in. Yeah. So it's less and less of that. But yeah, I would say hockey is the one that I see the most that is probably not, you know, the most popular. And do you insist on working alone or do you have uh, people who will help you with things? I mean, I, I'm sure you get just a ton of requests and tips and things now just because this account has taken off the way that it has. But are there other people you will rely on for second opinions or is it just sort of, you know, the, the private detective just working on their own sort of uh, film noir style? Right. I like to do it myself. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want to be the Batman of these things. And uh the what the one thing that I will do is if I am stuck, I will reach out to the person like the people that I think are involved in the game. You know, mm. like I think that makes for an entertaining video. I just did one with a boxer. I went down the movie Rounders with mm-hmm. uh, Matt Damon. There's a boxing scene at the end where he goes like, yeah, "Pay that man his money." The, <laughs> there's a boxing match going on in the background, and I figured out from the clues who that boxer was and then I reached out to him on Twitter and uh we we went on back and forth because there were no videos. I thought I had the match but I wasn't 100% sure. So I just mm-hmm. talked to him and he was like, "Oh yeah, you know, 10 to 15 years ago all my buddies were so, you know, excited for me and I didn't know what they were talking about, but I was a movie star, you know." <laughs> uh-huh. So so he had already heard, but uh, yeah, that yeah. I, I like confirming with them. I don't love going to experts. I will say, because this is the thing is a lot of the time people will comment on my, you know, on my videos and be like, oh, I knew it from the start. I'm a huge whatever fan. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, they probably knew the stadium, right? And maybe they knew the game. I don't know. But that makes sense. If you're a fan of that team, Right. That makes sense that if you look at it and you know, whatever, you see this certain guy. So I don't love doing that because that kind of, you know, it's too easy, right? It's like... Yeah, right. It's almost like you're you're artificially handicapping yourself in a sense. I mean, you right. could crowdsource it, right? And put right. it out there to the million people who follow you and, and probably someone in that is Is a fan it. of yeah. that team at that right. certain era and they go, well, I know what that is. Yeah, it's, that's you know, no fun. <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah. like, uh, obviously, we're all fans of teams and have watched hours and hours of this. Like we were saying at the start, it's like you are an expert on that team. Mm-hmm. But it's like the the fun of these videos is like, how do you expand outside of that team and expand outside of your country and expand out of the sport? That's right. what I think is interesting. Yeah, right. I, I was going to ask whether you have gotten into more journalistic 
tactics, right? Because you could just limit yourself to, nope, I I only want to know what is on the screen here, and I'm going to be very strict about that. Or you could start doing reporting, and you could start talking to people, and and that's not cheating or anything. I mean, it's a a different way of being diligent and going super deep on these things. I think that's still entertaining, but it's just a a different process. So, And I love the research part of it. I really do. Like, I love watching old games and reading newspapers and stuff like that i find that fun Mm -hmm. whenever i have to like reach out to someone it is pretty nerve-wracking and like yeah what what do i say and but i will say doing all of those things like doing all these videos has made me you know i've got a big head now and there's a couple of people who have reached out to me who are like you should try and solve crimes and i have i have three or four sports related crimes that I'm actually looking into and reading everything I can about it Ooh. and have reached out to a couple of people about certain things. So that's a little teaser for hopefully. But here's the thing, doing nice. these videos, there there is a conclusion to all of them, right? And yeah. the thing I'm learning about, you know, actual, you know, mysteries is mm-hmm. sometimes there's not a clean conclusion, right? Yeah. And so I will say it's difficult for me to like make a video with not having the answer you know what i mean yeah and so uh yeah we'll see where that goes that sounds exciting yeah i see a a narrative podcast in your future or a a vodcast or whatever i guess you kind of need the video component but yeah i was gonna say i mean i i like that you sort of hold yourself to this strict way of doing it but if you ever do determine that there are just some that you can't solve you know i was thinking of like there was this mathematician david hilbert in 1900 and he published what are called the hilbert problems the it was like a list of 23 unsolved mysteries basically of mathematics and he just put it out there and mm-hmm. once people put those lists of like well i throw up my hands like these are the the big mysteries and then everyone can pick away at them right and right. you get that sort of crowdsourced element so if you ever retire or if you just decide i cannot solve this then i hope you'll you'll put out like the the arujo problems or something so that like people can collectively yeah come up with answers yeah so if there's any cricket fans watching like uh <laughs> i will definitely put out that video you can go check it out the the reason i want it so bad is this guy on the athletic i can't even remember his name is he was like uh no problem gambler cannot figure this one out <laughs> and i i refuse to believe that I cannot figure it out, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> is baseball any easier just because of the amount of data that's out there? I mean, I, I guess with most major sports, you can at least like look up when games took place and that sort of thing, and you don't necessarily need to look down to, I don't know, the individual pitch level, or maybe you do, but just because everything in baseball is so quantified and so tracked, and there's just such a, a long history of recording every yeah. last detail of everything that happens on the field, I wonder whether that makes things any easier when you do do a a baseball investigation when you get down to trying to find the game you know that's Mm -hmm. when that's important right when you're trying to figure out what team this is or you know any of those things you know baseball is i'll say this american football is the hardest it's Mm -hmm. the hardest to find because a lot of the shots are just the field and the players so if you don't have the jerseys it's pretty tough, right? Because you're just looking at a grass field. (laughs) I would say that baseball, because of the uniqueness of the field sometimes is helpful, but when it's just the pitcher and the batter, dude, it's very tough to try and figure, like, you know, decipher what stadium they're in. 
Right. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite baseball one that you've done? Well, I'll say the last baseball one I did, it happened close to me. And so hmm. I actually had the program from this exact year that the game was happening in. So I thought it was pretty cool that I was like a part of this. I wasn't at the game or anything like that, but it was like not my hometown team, but it's the team that I went to the most as a kid. Mm. And so I I liked that I was able to like kind of relate to it. It did make it like somewhat easier, mm -hmm. I will say. But yeah, they, they had actually gone out of their way and like stripped the jerseys of their logos and everything. So I, <laughs> which, I which show was this or which game? Uh Jane the Virgin. It happened uh, -huh, uh right. yeah. it, it was the uh Winnipeg Gold Eyes and the Fargo Moorhead uh, Red Hawks. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I guess the the licensing fees for the the Gold Eyes and the Red Hawks probably pretty affordable. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And have you ever heard from someone after you've posted a video, someone who's involved in the production maybe and and said either confirmed that you were right or was just amazed that you did this or thought it was kind of cool that you had highlighted their show or their appearance or whatever? The thing is, in a production, it is so small. Yeah. And like uh, Stephen found this out with the one we did is like he asked the producer of it and he was like, I have no idea. That is such right. a small, minute detail that I have no idea. I don't even know who picked it. I don't know if anyone, you know, was even around for, you know, when that decision was made. <laughs> so I, I've never been reached out to by like a TV producer or anything like that. The one I will say is I... I was sure that Buffalo Wild Wings was using fake games in their commercials because <laughs> I, I, I mean, basketball is pretty easy to figure out because of the floorboards are so, you know, mm. distinct. But I was sure that they were using fake games. I was like, these games do not exist in the world. And then I had the guy who made the commercial reach out to me and show <laughs> me that uh, they, are, they are indeed fake I can't remember where they were made. They were fake Slovenian basketball games. They're, they're like, oh, wow. <laughs> they, they use these stock footage, whatever. And so like, they're just using random, like he said, like some of the fans in the crowd are cardboard and they just like spend, a, you know, well, spend a day. I guess everyone did. Right. That, yeah. <laughs> they spend like a day filming all of these different basketball shots. I don't know. It was, it was wild to actually see that. Is there any specific software that you use to slow these things down, like go frame by frame, like any tools of the trade or like, you know, a certain monitor or lighting or just anything that you can use to, to glean any little morsel of information? Uh, I wish I had a cool answer. It's literally all off my phone. Okay. It's, oh, it's, it's just looking at it. The, the hardest thing is trying to find an HD stream on... Yeah on the internet that you can record because Netflix yeah. doesn't let you record and mm -hmm. Disney plus doesn't let you record. So it's trying to find an HD fully legal, obviously of uh, course. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, stream of these movies. But uh, I mean, as ridiculous as it sounds, I do use a magnifying glass sometimes. So I am yeah. like literally Sherlock Holmes at that point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there, there's no like, tricks or anything like that right i mean i'm sure i've you have a, almost a million followers i'm sure i'm almost the millionth person to say that it would be great if if the csi style enhance you know yes zoom in, if that like, existed yeah right. exactly <laughs> i mean i assume that like if this were a, a matter of national security or something as opposed to a tiktok account 
well, sometimes uh, TikTok is a matter of national security, yes. but not in this sense. But, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like if this were like uh, national security was at stake and state secrets, like I'm sure that like, you know, there are various video technologies. I mean, like, you know, there's all kinds of uh, technology that can like make old video games look better than they did at the time by using AI to like spruce it up and, and make it higher res and all that sort of stuff. So I'm sure that, you know, if this were like a, a matter of utmost importance, <laughs> that there probably is some right, fancy exactly. video technology out there that you could use. Like if, you know, if you enlisted some video specialist, computer programmer technology, like that's the next step, you know, when you form yeah, your, exactly. your company or your team. Then. How do you unscramble <laughs> this, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. No, that, that, that would be perfect for me, actually. Right. How long a, a to-do list do you have currently? I, I guess like one's on the back burner where you've kind of conceded that that you can't make any more progress now, but maybe you, you hope that you can one day and ones that you are actively working on. So I will say requests. I'm not even joking. I have 250 in my, <laughs> in, in my Word document. The one, and I haven't even looked at those that I, ha- I haven't even looked at. Then I have about f- uh, 50 that I have looked at and I have down like uh, on my phone that I've like mm-hmm. looked at. And then I would say six or seven good ones that are on the back burner that I will never give up on. But yeah, that like they're definitely on the back burner. I, I've decided to like move on to other videos and stuff like that. But I will say out of that 250, I would say there's maybe good, like 50 good ones. Hopefully there's 50 good ones. I mean, out of that 250 there are some that are like so blatantly obvious right it's like mm-hmm. you know I, I don't know how many times i've gotten the day after tomorrow it's like there there's man <laughs> there's manchester yeah. united all over the this you is know, beneath th- me this yeah. is <laughs> way beneath me yeah i would get uh, crucified if i were to do that video they'd be like this is you know this yeah. is garbage so yeah. yeah so like out of that 250 there's maybe 50 good ones have any copycat accounts sprung up trying to horn in on your territory here? Honestly, no. <laughs> I I welcome it because you have to be an insane person to do this. But yeah, like, I mean, I think it is such a specific and like niche thing that it's like, if someone were to start doing it, they probably would get the like, oh, you're just copying this person. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's really great either it's like i think it's fun when other people would join in and stuff i've actually had like fans of mine not people who like run tiktok accounts but like have like shown me hey i found this one and it's like you know it's actually funny like some of the time they're just like completely wrong but i'm like oh yeah that's cool amateurs it's like (laughs) someone was like telling me they were like the the game in batman rises is a miami heat game And I looked at it for a second and I was like, that's definitely not a Miami Heat game. And then I I started doing that one. It's coming up uh, because I figured this one out. But they were like, it's a Miami Heat game. Well, I looked at this. It's a women's basketball game. How is it a Miami Heat game? (laughs) Like, it's not even close. But, uh, you know, whatever. It's if people want to do it, they should do it. Is your your career or your expertise or your your history? I don't know if you you divulge your details of your personal life or professional life outside of this, but 
is it any in any way connected to this or did it in any way prepare you for this or the people in your your day job if this is not your day job like know that you have this uh alter ego yeah who's, well, uh, doing these deep dives i mean people know that i'm a sports dork i <laughs> i went to school for sports management i work in that mm -hmm. so it's not a huge secret but i will say for a year and a half my wife my girlfriend at the time my wife now was the only one in my life that knew I was doing it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, nobody still else. married you. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I didn't, like, advertise it to the people around me. But everyone knows, like, I'm a huge nerd for sports. I go to a ton yeah, of sports. it wouldn't be it's, out of character it, for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I guess, I, I don't know whether this is good or bad, but I, I guess it will get easier to do this over time, what with everything being HD and everything increasingly being 4K, right? And, and you know, actors will talk about, like, oh, they, they can't hide a zit anymore, right? <laughs> right and yeah. so I guess it will be even easier to identify these things in theory. But again, I don't know if that's good because the difficulty is, is part of the appeal here. But future generations will have an easier time of, of <laughs> yeah. doing this in theory than... You know, you. Yeah, I'll be the old man to... shouting at the clouds in my <laughs> yeah, day. Back in my day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Standard definition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this has been a ton of fun, and, and the whole account is a, a ton of fun. How can people uh, add to your very long list of suggestions if they're interested? Uh, best way of doing it is just commenting on my TikToks. Send me DMs if you want. But yeah, that's at No Problem Gambler mm -hmm. on uh, TikTok. Are you able to or are you interested in monetizing this in some way? I mean, you mentioned that you're you're working on other projects, but just in terms of the TikTok videos, like has this led to more exciting opportunities than getting to talk about it on Effectively Wild? <laughs> yeah, I mean, these videos themselves, I haven't made any money yet on them. The account, mm -hmm. I used to be like a, a gambling guy, right? That's where the mm -hmm. name came from. I made quite a bit of money, but I kind of got you know, bored of like the sports gambling hot take kind mm -hmm. of minutia of it all. Mm -hmm. But I will say that uh, more people have like more uh, sponsors and stuff like that. And my account has gotten bigger. This, this is the most relevant I've ever felt. You know what I mean? Is like mm -hmm. I wasn't doing interviews when I was, you know, <laughs> doing sports betting because there's a million people doing it, right? Mm -hmm. Plus the people who actually know what they're doing are probably less likely to, to give interviews. But y yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think now that I've kind of separated myself as like this like specialty account, more people have like sponsors and stuff have reached out to me. I haven't bit on any of them, but I, I am looking towards that. If I could do, you know, these videos and like I said, where I'm doing like, you know, solving actual crimes, stuff yeah. like that. If I could make videos like that and make money and be happy, I would love that. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, maybe in the future. Put your powers to use. And I guess you've you've branched out into just sort of being a, a sports media pundit person, right? I mean, you know, you'll put out your your NFL picks and that sort of thing, or right. or you'll make montages, things that are not your your, you know, trademark kind right. of video, right? Some sprinkling that in. Do you get people who are like stick to the video investigations? <laughs> like I don't uh, <laughs> No, I See, I've kind of put that stuff in the past and I have people now being like, why don't you make your old videos anymore? And actually, uh -huh. there's like a, a thing that people don't realize. The old videos that I was doing, I was doing like a kind of like the Sports Center top 10, you know, mm -hmm. what my impression of that. TikTok doesn't allow that anymore. They they were huh. taking down all the audio of my videos. They were taking, you know, they were banning my account because I was using like 
copyrighted mm. videos of the games and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I I had to change my content. And I think I changed it for the better, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, like I do have people being like, why don't you ever make those videos anymore? It's like, <laughs> I literally cannot. I, my, my account will be banned. Have you had issues, rights issues with, with the sports ones? I mean, with what you're doing now? No, never. Because I huh. think uh, I'm providing like a... A fair use sort of... Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. Where I'm Got not it. like I'm not showing... I, I'm not showing the game and using the audio from the game. And I'm not showing the, the movie and using the audio from the movie. You know, it's... I'm talking over it. So I think it's mm-hmm. different. Yeah. Well, really enjoy it and have enjoyed talking to you today. And I'm sure there are people kicking themselves like, oh, I could have done this. Why didn't (laughs) I do this? You know, like other people have done these deep dives before, but you're just the the acknowledged expert. You're proficient. You've hit on the right format and the right medium and the right time. And it has clicked. And and now you're you're just the market leader. So you've got a monopoly over the space almost. It would be tough to unseat you now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, Ian, great to talk to you. Thanks very much. All right. Appreciate having me on. All right. Love talking to Ian. Please do check out his videos if you haven't yet. Also in this genre, I enjoyed the two-part investigation that Brian Feldman did for Defector this year on the secret history of the internet's funniest buzzer beater, that ancient low-resolution video of the little kid getting hit in the head by a buzzer beater in a basketball game, and Brian was able to determine the origins of that clip. I'll link to that on the show page too, but we've got one more great interview coming up for you, and it's about Bo Jackson. I will be right back with Jeff Perlman to discuss his new book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Well, I'm joined now by Jeff Perlman, the best-selling author of 10 books, the latest of which concerns someone who I'm surprised doesn't have a whole shelf full of books about him, Bo Jackson. This book, builds accurately, I think, as the definitive bio of Bo, is called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Jeff, congrats on reaching a double-digit book count, and welcome to the show. You know what? I only did it for one reason, and it's to appear on your podcast. That is the only reason... <laughs> I've waited all my career starting 20 years ago led to this moment. Well, glad to fulfill your dreams. And I'm going to try to avoid making more Bo-nose jokes during this conversation, but I will allow myself one at the start, which is that Bo knew apparently that writing a book about him was going to be hard. He told you that during the one quick call you had with him, and he was right. So aside from the fact that he didn't want to talk to you for the book, which maybe made it slightly more difficult, why was it hard to tell his story? Oh man, he's so guarded. He's so guarded. He is a clam in a shell. Like he is as guarded as you can be. (laughs) And it's hard when, I mean, it's weird. I don't think I've ever written about someone like this where you're so well-known, but so guarded at the same time. You know, like that's Mm -hmm. that's a rare combination. Sounds like a possibly a fruitful one for a biographer, right? Yeah. Because everyone knows who it is, but sure. people may not know that much about him. And yeah. I do think so. I do think so. But I just think it is a little bit of a challenge when a guy is really, 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 really guarded and at the same time 
super famous. And, and so you're trying to convince people there's a reason to write a biography because they think they know everything about someone. And you're like, no, you actually know nothing about this guy. And I'm going to try to prove that. But it's a challenge. Right. Well, it's not your first biography. It's not your first unauthorized biography. So you're used to writing around a subject and, and finding a way to tell someone's story, perhaps without their participation. And if access to the subject were all that mattered, then there wouldn't need to be a Bo Jackson biography because he wrote an autobiography right with Dick Shap, and that would just be all you need to know. But of course, there is more to it than that. So what is your strategy? It seems like just possibly excessive amounts of research is one way around not talking to the person at the center of the story. But how do you kind of compensate for not getting something straight from the horse's mouth? Although I guess in this case, you did have some notes that were prepared and made public from the autobiography. So that helped. So my my approach is just like, go for it all. It truly is like, go for it all. Me, when I was at Sports Illustrated, we had a really, you know, Gary Smith was this great writer. And I heard him say, he didn't say it to me, but I heard him say, like, always make the extra call, always make the extra call, always make the extra yeah. call. And that's kind of my yeah. approach. Always make the extra call. Like, I'll have people every now and then be like, man, you're a great reporter. And I'm like, I'm actually not a great reporter. Like, I'm not great with finding things. I'm not amazing at documents, etc. I'm not that great at that. But I am good at calling and making the extra call, making the extra call. And with this book... As you alluded to, like Dick Shap wrote Bo Knows Bo in 1990. And um, before he died, he gave all his notes, tapes, et cetera, to the Auburn Library. And I didn't know about this, but I was working on the book and someone said, you know, Dick Shap donated, blah, 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 blah. And I, um, I reached out and I don't think anyone had touched this stuff in 30 years. I really don't. And it was a freaking avalanche of material. Number one, it was all the audio recordings from a 28-year-old Bo talking about his life and career. Number two... Um, it was all transcribed, much of it by Jeremy Shap, a young Jeremy Shap at the time, his son. Mm -hmm. And a ton of it never made the book, a ton of it. And the interesting thing journalistically is maybe a ton of it didn't make the book because he didn't want it in the book, you know, like there's some, <laughs> right. but I just kind of thought it was public information. It was donated to a library. People go to a library to read stuff. I, I think that gives me kind of access to it. And that was sort of a big moment for me finding that. Mm -hmm. Right. So folk heroes can be completely real or completely fictitious. And he is obviously real, but there's a, an element of myth to him. So how much of the bow we know, those of us who haven't written books about him, is real? A very large percentage, actually. Now, mm -hmm. what I found really fun was sort of digging behind the mythology. And, you know, a perfect example is the 91-yard run on Monday Night Football against the Seahawks, which is mm -hmm. really part one of a two-part bonanza, the other being him running over Bosworth in the same game. And all right, so we have this run. We've seen it a million times. What can I do with a run we've seen a million times that everyone knows from a certain era? Well, you start calling people and you call more people. And I, I talked to Dave Craig, the Seahawks quarterback, and he was talking about how um, he was standing on the sidelines when Bo ran past. And he, he swore by this. He's like, I heard the whoosh. Like I heard whoosh as Bo. And he's like, that's the only time in my career I heard a whoosh. And then I talked to one of the uh, coaches and he was standing by the sideline and he was holding papers loosely in his hand. And he said, Bo runs by and the papers went and like kind of fell out of his hand. Now, I don't know, it sounds kind of crazy, but both these guys swore on it. And then you dig deeper and deeper and you look at the run and you notice it's not just a run. Seven different Seattle players had angles on him. And the second to last guy to have an angle on him happened to be Hall of Fame safety Kenny Easley. And Bo ran through all those angles, one after another, after another. 
So like, I love that stuff. I love the wall climb in Baltimore when, you know, like it's insane to watch him climb up that wall. It's ridiculous. But then you start talking to people. And I talked to guys from the Orioles bullpen who were behind the wall. And they said they recoiled because they actually thought he was coming over the wall. Like, mm-hmm. that's crazy. But then you watch replay and you're like, oh, I actually get it because his head is high, you know? And like, right. you, you could see it. So I love taking the myths and then taking them apart piece by piece. Right. That story about him actually making a whoosh reminds me of the the Buck O'Neill story, right? About how he heard the crack of the bat, what, three times in his life and, and ran out to see who hit it. And it was Babe Ruth and Josh Gibson and Bo Jackson. Oh, wait, and I'm going to say something interesting. I don't buy that, right? Like I've heard that. Okay. I just don't buy it. It just doesn't. I don't buy it because well, like, I, I was going to ask you, my next question was going to be, what are some Bo stories that you don't believe? Well, so this is perfect. I'll give you some. I just, the thing is I covered a ton of major league baseball and people would be mm-hmm. like, you need to watch McGuire taking BP. It doesn't sound like anyone else. And then they'd be like, mm-hmm. you need to watch Bonds take BP. It doesn't sound, you need to watch Griffey. And they all kind of sounded the same to me. Maybe I'm untrained. I don't know. I watch a lot of baseball. I don't know. But there were, all right. Myth said that, all right. Number one myth that isn't true. And it's funny because it really was a guiding principle for me early on. And then it turned out not to be true. Is Bo wrote in his autobiography that he started his Auburn baseball career, baseball, not football, by going um, 0 for 21 with 21 strikeouts. And when I pitched the book to people, I would cite that. I'd be like, this is crazy. He even went 0 for 21 with 21 strikeouts. And I started interviewing guys from Auburn's baseball program. And they're like, you know, it's crazy. He went 0 for 21 with 21 strikeouts. And like, that's how this stuff works sometimes. Like it catches fire. And all right. So I I call up Auburn and I get all the box scores. Bo Jackson's first college game, Southern Illinois, two for five. First first at bat, beat a ground, beat a grounder to shortstop for an infield hit. So like, all right, that's not true. I get it's a cool story, but it's actually not true. Then there's some where you're like, I don't know how this is. There's a game. My favorite game probably of Bo Jackson's life is one that's not on tape. And it's his junior year. He's at Auburn and they're playing the first night game at the University of Georgia's baseball stadium, Foley Field. First night game ever there. And it's a packed crowd. It's kind of a big deal. Lithograph, tickets, the whole thing. Bo's in right field and the fans are just giving him grief the whole time because there's still this Bo Herschel thing, even though Herschel's gone. Mm. Bo's first at bat, he flies out. He returns to right field. The fans just beat the crap out of him. Everything you can call a guy, they're calling a guy. But he comes up for his second at bat. It's a first night game. And he hits a ball that hits the lights, like actually hit the lights. And this Mm -hmm. is 39 days before The Natural came out in movie theaters. (laughs) His next at bat, he hits another home run. His third at bat, uh, fourth at bat, he hits another home run. So he goes fly out. Homer, Homer, Homer. His last at-bat, he doubles, and the whole stadium boos him. And that is a true, (laughs) verified, documented, written about, covered, witnessed by enough people that I believe it. It's amazing that anyone would feel the need to exaggerate anything about Bo Jackson because the reality is larger than life as it is. So <laughs> it's gilding the lily, really, to have to say, oh, he went over 21 with 21 strikeouts. It's impressive enough just to quote the actual stats and, and cite what he actually accomplished. I don't, but I don't think he was lying. Like, I don't think yeah. he was lying. I really don't. I think he was probably mm-hmm. like, I think somewhere. It's interesting. The other day he was on Rich Eisen's show. This is right before my book came out. So it's about three weeks ago. And he was on Rich Eisen show. And Rich asked him, um, what's the greatest moment of your professional sports career? And he didn't flinch. He's like, it was July so-and-so, 1990. I was on the Royals. We were hosting the Brewers. And I struck out and I argued strike three. So I would get called out of the game, thrown out of the game. So I could go see, be in the hospital from the birth of my daughter. And he told mm-hmm. this story. And it was, he told it twice. I heard him tell it on another station too. 
And I'm like, I don't know. That doesn't sound that familiar. And I look it up. And on the date he gave, the Royals were hosting the Red Sox. Bo Jackson (laughs) didn't play because he was injured. And then I looked at the whole season. Bo Jackson was never thrown out of a game that year. Like not one time. Uh I don't think he's lying. I think memory is a tricky thing. So that's why when someone like Bo Jackson, you know, tweets out, which he did, you can't believe it. It's not from me. You can only believe it if it's from me. I always think journalistically, it's such a flawed way of thinking because you're going to remember, go off your memories and I'm going to go off research and memories, but mainly research. Right. Yeah. It's like the Rob Nyer idea of the the tracer that he used to do where he would look up, you know, so-and-so claimed that I did this on this day. And then you find out, well, that can't have happened because those players never played in that game. You know, <laughs> memory is, is fallible. And there's a little motivated storytelling that creeps in from time to time. Is there one that sounds like a tall tale, but actually checked out? And maybe it's the one you were just telling me about hitting the lights and, and getting booed after you doubled. But I wonder whether any underappreciated, not the, the the pantheon of Bo stories, but something you uncovered that you weren't aware of, perhaps. Can I give you two? Sure. Yeah, give me as many as you want. <laughs> All right. So one is um, he shows up in 87 with the Raiders. It's his first season. And, you know, there's all this buzz about how fast Bo Jackson is. Tom Flores is a head coach of the Raiders, and they have Bo run a 40 on grass in pads. And he does a 4-1-9. And they don't believe it. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So they have him run it again. They measure off the distance and make sure it's right. And he runs a 4-1-7, which is just insane. <laughs> he also, along those lines, his first major league at bat against the White Sox for the Royals, he beat out a ground ball to second base and he ran a 3-6 to first, which was the second fastest recorded time in history by a right-handed hitter home the first in the majors. But <laughs> the other one I love is he's in high school. I've now told this story 8,000 times, I'm not going to lie, but I just love it so much. He's in high school. He plays at McAdoria High in Alabama. They're playing Fairfield High. And I start hearing these stories that, oh man, do you know about the ball that was hit against Fairfield, that he hit against Fairfield? And I'm like, no. And they're like, you need to find out about this ball. You have to find out about that. This, this thing is crazy. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, okay. And people start saying, Bo hit a ball so high in a high school game that by the time it came down and touched the grass, he was rounding third base. And I thought, <laughs> that no, that doesn't make any sense. But I start talking to people and people will be like, you need to talk to this guy. You need to talk to this guy. All right, I'll yeah, talk to this guy. It's oh. one step removed from the cool Papa Bellas in bed before exactly. <laughs> the lights go out after he flips the switch. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. But then you need to talk to Eddie Scott. Well, who's Eddie Scott? Eddie Scott was playing left field for Fairfield that day. So I tracked down Eddie Scott, the outfielder who fielded the ball. And he's like, Jeff, I swear to God. He hit the ball so high. This guy, Eddie Scott, wound up playing in college in Alabama. And he said, he, it's the highest hit ball I've ever fielded or seen in my life. I lost it in the sky for a minute. It came down. It hit the grass. I pick it up. I look to throw to second. And Bo is rounding third. And he swore by it. And I recently did a, a, an, a book event in Birmingham. And this guy walks up. He's wearing a mask, kind of gray hair. And he's like, Jeff. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, Eddie Scott. And I was like, oh my God, Eddie Scott. And he's like, I heard you talking about me on the Today Show. And I'm like, damn right, Eddie Scott, because you're the man. So, you know, kind of amazing. (laughs) When did the legend of Bo begin? By which I mean, at what point did it become incredibly clear that this was a a special athlete? I think it would be his freshman year at Auburn when, um, you know, they lost nine straight Iron Bowls against Alabama, which is Iron Bowls, obviously the Auburn-Alabama game. And Bo comes in, and late in the game, there's this play, Bo over the top. That's literally what they called it. It was the only play 
name for a player. Everything else was, you know, numbers and letters, but Bo over the top. Auburn's trailing. It's late in the game. They're at the one-yard line of Alabama. They hand the uh, Randy Campbell hands a ball off to Bo. He soars over the top, and they win. And Bo over the top is absolute legend in Auburn to this day, in the state of Alabama to this day. There are photos of it hanging places. Everyone knows Bo over the top. And it took him to a new level. It's funny because Bear Bryant retired at the end of that season and then died shortly thereafter. So it was almost truly like a changing of the guard where Bear Bryant, the iconic Alabama football, face of Alabama football, was leaving and a new homegrown Alabama face of football, Bo Jackson, was arriving. And the funny thing about that game is, and nobody remembers this, Auburn got the ball back. They were up minute and something left. Bo, they did another third down, Bo over the top. He fumbled and Alabama recovered. And Auburn got really lucky that, uh, you know, the defense held. But Bo over the top could have been Bo fumbles and they lose the game, but they got lucky. But that moment is still one of the most famous plays in the history of Auburn football, if not the most. So you've written about people who are not the most personable at times, <laughs> at least in public or with the media, you know, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens or Brett Favre, for that matter, checkered pasts, let's say. And Bo, you know, has some of those qualities, some of that, that Bondianness to him, some surliness or, or suspiciousness or just uh, reticence, right? And you'd tell some stories in the book. I mean, you'd talk about how he's so fiercely protective of his autograph and he wouldn't sign anything for a former teammate unless they handed over the cash, right? And then there's also another genre of intensity stories that kind of crosses over to this guy could be tough to talk to to oh this is actually over the line right the the kevin seitzer story that you tell from when seitzer was his teammate on the royals and look it sounds like seitzer was a pain in the ass but also it sounds like Bo almost killed him so was that kind of thing the exception was that simmering under the surface i mean it seems like he's a, a complicated guy and that he will do a lot of good and generous things and then also sometimes snap to some extent it's funny i've been promoting this book and i keep i've been i was using different words to describe him and i i settled on a word that i i'm standing by which is uh prickly he's mm. very prickly he is not warm and fuzzy he's a i think a good person he, you know, after the Valdi shootings, he gave money to the families to pay for funeral expenses. He has a charity bike race every year, Bo Bikes Bama. He's a very good husband by all accounts, a really good dad, a grandfather now, very family oriented. He's super guarded and he's super, I mean, autograph shows, there are a lot of highs and lows with Bo Jackson. In fact, someone, I did a signing the other day, uh, yesterday in LA, and someone told me, you know the, uh, you know the famous Bo poster, the ball player with the bat and he's wearing his football pads. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Yep. So this guy brought that poster to have Bo signed at an autograph show. And he said that um, Bo's people and then Bo said Bo either didn't get paid for that or doesn't feel like he got paid fairly for that, for the image. And therefore he refuses to sign it. And <laughs> I always think about like, you're some guy, you love Bo Jackson, you pay a hundred bucks to go to this autograph show. Then you probably pay an extra 60 for a Bo signature. And he won't sign the poster because he didn't get, you know, that's, he kind of has that. There's a story in the book. Um, Greg Townsend was a defensive end with the Raiders and a teammate of Bo. And they did an autograph show together about a decade ago in Anaheim. And Townsend brought a helmet and a jersey for Bo to sign. And he says, hey, Bo, how's it going? Hey, Greg, what's up? He says, hey, can you, do you mind signing these? And Bo says, well, I'm going to have to charge you. And he's like, what? And he's like, I'm going to have to charge you. And Townsend's lying to me that he said he said to Bo was, you were an asshole when we played and you're an asshole now. 
So people are complicated, man. People are complicated. Yeah. And of course, you also wrote a book about the 86 Mets called The Bad Guys Won. So are you just drawn to the prickly people? <laughs> are they more interesting? I mean, you're you're not making it easy on yourself here. I mean, you know what? A lot of the people I wrote about, I mean, Walter Payton was lovely and far of actually yes. considering what a dirtbag he is, was a liked guy in the NFL. So mm-hmm. it just depends on the. I was writing about Bo because of the mystique more than anything. Right, right. So Bo's, you know, this incredible story, almost like the the hypothetical that you come up with in a what-if story, and yet he's sort of a what-if story in himself, right? Because you marvel at everything he accomplished, and then inevitably at some point the conversation turns to what else could he have accomplished, right? If this hadn't happened or if this had happened differently. So do you see it as more one or the other or or both equally essentially you know this is something that no one else could have done no one else has really done since and so this is basically the apotheosis of of athletic achievement or is it a a story of sort of missed opportunity to some extent too i view it as um it's funny i asked a lot of athletes uh former teammates that question is this a tragedy or mm-hmm. is this more tragedy or bolt of lightning joy yeah. And I think by far it's more a uh, bolt of lightning joy. Mm-hmm. I really do. And I, f- I feel like for sports writers like myself, there's this instinctive need to say what a shame it is. Oh, it's such a shame. And it's always like, it's such a shame. He could have been in both Hall of Fames or it's such a shame. <laughs> he should be in Canton right now. Mm-hmm. And if we get to the nitty gritty of it, like, okay, so your bust is on a wall in a building in Canton, Ohio. Like, all right, that's cool. And yeah. I get you can sign. He has the fame, whether right. he's in the hall or not. <laughs> right. You can charge more for autographs because you can write HOF on it. I get that's cool. But like, he's the greatest athlete who ever lived. And if he had just said, I'm just going to play baseball or I'm just going to play football, we would never know that. So I, I think it's amazing. All right. So if he had just played football, he'd be right there with Eric Dickerson and Marcus Allen and Walter Payton. If he just played baseball, maybe he'd be there. Maybe he'd be there with Mike Trout and Clemente. Maybe be with those guys. But like, he's there with Jim Thorpe. Like he Mm -hmm. actually is there with Jim Thorpe and Carl Lewis and guys like that. He's not on the list of the greatest baseball players of all time. He's not on the list of the greatest football players of all time. He's on the list of the greatest athletes to ever walk the planet. That's insane. Yeah, right. That's quite a legacy. And I I wonder the fact that that has held up, whereas, you know, it's been decades since he was an active player. And over that time, in general, athletes, they keep getting bigger, they keep getting stronger, they keep getting faster, right? And so in that sense, you would think someone would come along and outstrip Bo Jackson. On the other hand, because everyone is getting so much better at, at their respective sports and everything is getting more specialized and the, the caliber of competition just continues to increase in every field, then it may be more and more difficult for someone to come along and do what he did, even if athletically they are just as gifted or even more gifted, right? So do you think he he will be surpassed, can be surpassed? I mean, look, eventually everyone is forgotten, right, If on a long enough timescale. But in our lifetimes, let's say, however long that is, can someone come along and, and wipe the floor with Bo Jackson's memory? Or is it just a, a legacy that really cannot be topped given the current conditions? That's a great question. So there's a couple of things. Number one, there's so few two sport athletes anymore. Like it's not even allowed yeah. anymore. I live in Southern California and I always say as soon as a kid shows he can like dribble a basketball, oh, we got to get him a tutor and we got to get him. We need to sign yeah. him up for AAU ASAP and like, well, no, mom, I kind of want to play baseball. No, you can't play baseball because, and that's really lost, right? And the whole, I know I'll sound like grandpa Jeff here, but like the whole 
I'm going to go play pickup for three hours with my buddies. I'm going to go play kill the carrier with my buddies. for two hours. Like that's dead. That doesn't exist anymore. And that's what those athletes grew up on. You know, they really did. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big factor is we're not really developing athletes in that way. And the other thing is that I really think matters in the legacy of Bo Jackson. Okay. We have all his great plays. We have the 91 yard run, just as an example. Well, Derrick Henry's made some amazing runs, you know, pick a running back. He's made Saquon Barkley, amazing runs. We have the Harold Reynolds throw. Well, Ellis Valentine made amazing throws and Clemente did. Nobody has climbed up a wall. Like nobody, not one person before he did it or after he did it, no one has ever climbed up a wall. And I, I feel like that's the test. If someone comes along and he can climb up a wall in the middle of a game in Baltimore, run across the wall and run down the wall, then maybe we can have the conversation. But no one else can do that. So to me, that being Spider-Man puts you on a different level. Right. Yeah. By the way, I just looked at his Twitter feed and saw that his, his most recent tweet is about how he will not be signing any uh, copies of your book. Which he didn't he wait. That is unfair. I am hurt. <laughs> he did is... not say my book. <laughs> yeah. Not even giving you the promotion. But he said, I won't be signing how, any how unauthorized biographies that? about me. Now, that could be yes. the other unauthorized biography sure. written by some kid in fifth grade. It could be that. Right. Yep. <laughs> well, I, I did have to ask just a, a couple of baseball specifically hypotheticals here. I mean, first of all, yes, the, the two sport athlete at that level is essentially unheard of. Now, I've been doing this podcast in various forms for about a decade at this point, And I remember early on having a conversations about whether a two sport athlete could happen again and B, whether a two way player in baseball could happen again. And at the time, I think both seemed pretty improbable to impossible. And the former still does. But then, of course, Shohei Otani comes along, right? And Shohei Otani, there are t-shirts out there, show knows, right? So he is doing something that was, I think, equally inconceivable to me quite recently, which then makes me wonder, is there a possibility that someone else could do that? I think it's it's even harder, right, to, to play in two different sports than to play in two different aspects of the same sport, just for all of the reasons that you've already mentioned. But the existence of Otani, it, it's opened my mind to a lot of possibilities. Right? So, well, I think Otani is the closest. When mm -hmm. people say, can there ever be another bow? I'm always like, I think Otani's as close as we get. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. And the other question is, I, I guess, you know, there are a couple hypotheticals you could have about his baseball career. But first, I will ask this, you know, when people talk about Michael Jordan's minor league numbers as a baseball player, they will rightly point out that A, he got better over time, right? And B, he was so rusty, he had so little experience that even though his stats on the surface are very unimpressive, given the context, they're actually quite impressive. And some people will say it's amazing that he was able to do what he did. And if he had kept at it, perhaps he, he could have legitimately made it to the majors, etc. So with Bo, how much would you say it is appropriate to adjust the stats that he actually had without any other timeline alterations or, or removing injuries or anything, but just the stats that he actually had, given that he was devoting himself to football, given that the Royals brought him up with very little minor league experience almost immediately after he was drafted, putting all of that together, how much more impressive are the actual stats in your mind? Oh man, that's a great question. First of all, if he had done, you know, he went to instructional league after his rookie year and he was there for about two weeks and he basically was like, F this, I'm leaving and left. Yeah. <laughs> he really left. He And the, the guy running it was a coach named Joe Judge. And he's like, uh, 
He's like, where are you going? And he's like, I'm leaving. I don't want to do this anymore. And he went home. Now, he needed instructional league. He needed to play yeah. in the Dominican. He needed reps. He needed at-bats. He needed to learn how to hit the other way. He needed to learn how to move runners over. He needed to learn how to read pitchers. He was so raw, like just raw. I mean, George Brett talked to me about this at length. So did Willie Wilson. Like, he didn't really know how to play baseball. He knew how to react to baseball, which is just a different thing altogether. Mm-hmm. I think if he had never played football in the NFL, if he just played baseball, went to the Winter League, played Instructional League, I hate saying he could have been Mike Trout because Mike Trout is one of the three or four maybe greatest players ever. Mm-hmm. But I think he could have been Mike Trout. I do. I just think he could have been. I think his, his athleticism was so phenomenal. His ability to learn things was razor sharp and quick. I just think he hurt. It doesn't matter. When he made that choice to play football, he basically made the decision not to develop in baseball. Mm -hmm. And so I think his numbers are impressive considering he basically was a wild stallion playing a sport that takes years to learn. Yeah, I I think the interesting hypothetical is, you know, well, he's drafted second round by the Yankees in 1982. What if he signs at that point and he just comes up through the system, you know, and he's playing from a young age. I mean, that even more so than what if he hadn't hurt his hip, et cetera. It's the early reps that he missed out on that I think might have made the major difference. And that's the thing I guess we can never fully know that, you know, athletic greatness is not always correlated perfectly with the finer points of the game, let's say, right? And and plate discipline, you know, there are a lot of players who are incredibly athletically gifted, but they just don't have the, the plate discipline gene, whatever that is, right? And there's no real way to know, I guess, whether he could have had it as it was. He struck out a ton for that era, especially, and didn't walk all that much if he wasn't the, the, the biggest hacker or free swinger out there. But compared to the strikeout rate, you know, it was a, a pretty pronounced mismatch there. So is that because of the lack of experience? That's certainly what you would expect to see given the lack of experience. Does that mean that he would have been a completely different player if he had gotten that early exposure to pitching? I guess we'll never know for sure. You know, there wasn't like that great. I guess there was some progression in his numbers, right? You know, you look at his his very early seasons, he was striking out more than in his later years. But it's just it's tough. There's just no way to know. But but I, I wouldn't bet against someone with his gifts. I think the thing that you said that's really interesting that I actually really hadn't thought about in any uh, depth is, all right, it's 1982 and the Yankees make him an offer he can't refuse, all right? Yeah. And instead of, and they were prepared to, and instead of dodging the Yankees at all costs, because basically Auburn put a cocoon around that guy and his mom wanted him to go to college and he'd never left the state except for one time to go to Six Flags. Like he was an Alabama kid. He was afraid of New York. He He wasn't interested. Hypothetically, he's drafted by the Yankees in 1982 he plays low level, whatever, rookie ball. He progresses. He's working with coaches. He's learning how to lay down bunts and sacrifice. He's learning how to run the bases. I mean, there's no reason to think he wouldn't be Mike Trout. And there, it's fascinating, this idea. There's, there, there's a good documentary or something to be done on this, right? Bo Jackson, as a Yankee, 1980s, <laughs> makes it up. Let's say he makes it up in 1984, 85. He's in the middle of a lineup with... Ricky Henderson, Don Mattingly, and Dave Winfield. He's a Yankee center fielder for a decade and a half. I mean, do they ever draft Derek Jeter? You know, all these things that fall apart then. What happens? But I think he would have been one of the great baseball players of all time. I really do. He was 40-40 in power and speed. He would have learned some semblance of plate discipline. I think it would have been amazing. I do. I really do. In pinstripes in New York. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, could have been teammates with Deion Sanders, potentially. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they wouldn't have needed Deion. But yes, what was it about baseball that he loved, your understanding, just in terms of uh, his respective affections for, for the two sports? I mean, it seems like baseball was was the bigger love or the first love if if he had to choose one. Track. Track was his favorite sport. He loved right, track. Right. He loved running. He was really good at it. He liked everything about it. Baseball would be a number two. And I feel like football, he liked a lot. I don't think he loved it like passion, like live and die. He wasn't, a lot of the coaches at Auburn sort of bemoaned, like Herschel Walker, <laughs> say what you want about Herschel Walker now. Like back then, like, and maybe this is why Herschel Walker is now, but like you gave him the ball, he didn't even think, he just ran. And like, mm-hmm. he just ran and ran and ran. He was almost a robot. All right, give me the ball 40 times a game. I will slam my head into opposing defenders. I don't care. And Bo didn't have that. Like he he was hard and he played hard. But he wasn't living and dying. He never lived and died with a win or a loss. He could take it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, I just think he was a complicated guy. He really was a different level. Yeah. It's interesting because if track is your first love, if you just really love running, I mean, football, it it seems like, is uh, the sport more so than baseball that would allow you to exhibit all of your strength and your speed, right? There's a a lot of standing around in baseball. Speed and strength are beneficial, of course, but perhaps a little less so than in a sport where how fast you can run and how hard you can hit is is really supremely important. So it sort of surprises me, I suppose, that that he would prefer baseball to football given his strengths and given his affection for track. Yeah. Well, um, the thing about track is uh, you can't make money in it. So like you're one, <laughs> when you're one of 11 kids growing up in Bessemer, Alabama in abject poverty, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to pick a track career. Mm-hmm. Right. So having done this, do you appreciate, admire, respect, whatever verb you want to use, Bo, more or less than when you began and when he was just the man, the myth, the legend, still is? Are are you more staggered by the talent and the career, having spent years living with this guy in your head? Definitely, because he was a a poster on the wall, you know, and he Mm -hmm. was like replay, he was highlights, but then you start digging into it. I think the thing, honestly, and it always sounds like cliche, when we talk about athletes this way, but like he really came from nothing, like not just nothing, but nothing, nothing. His dad living across town, having nothing to do with him, wearing his sister's hand-me-down shoes to school, a bully, a thick stutter, held back, mom working three jobs, no running water in his childhood home. Like he came from nothing. And when you see someone come from nothing and become something this big and this meaningful, it's different than just having a poster on your wall. You know, you kind Mm -hmm. of see behind the poster. So a million times more impressed and appreciative of Bo Jackson having gone through this ride. And if he had consented to talk to you for the book, is there something that you wish that you could have asked him? Or did you just speak to so many sources that you feel like you have as good a picture now as you would had you gotten to ask him something? No, there are a couple of things I'm really fascinated by. Number one is um, race in Auburn. Like... Mm. I talked to Lionel James, his his friend, roommate, and fellow running back. And Lionel James died a few months ago, which sucks, but I interviewed him before he died. And he just talked about most sophomore year that the athletic dorm was under renovation. So all the all the players had to live in these mobile housing units around Auburn. And Pat Dye, the football coach, this is Lionel James telling me this, said, told him and Bo, I know you guys are fooling around with the white women. I don't have a problem with it, but I don't know how that's going to go over here at Auburn. So we're going to put you way off campus so people won't see it. And I'm fascinated by that. Fascinating. The other thing is, and the one thing about, I love Bo's autobiography. Like I was, it came out in 1990. I was 17. 
I love that book. I loved it as a kid, loved it. But researching him, there was a guy named Greg Pratt who was his teammate at Auburn, and he was a fullback. And during a drill, um, Bo's sophomore year, Greg Pratt died of heat stroke. And this was a close friend of Bo's. And I, do, I, I dove hardcore into Greg Pratt, spoke to family members, spoke to friends, spoke to a million teammates about watching him die. He's sitting in the shower under cold water and he says to Lionel James, Lionel, tell my mom I'm going to be okay. Bo and Lionel rush off to the hospital. It's this really profound moment of young loss for Bo Jackson and uh, not a word of it in Bo Knows Bo. And mm-hmm. I, it was something that absorbed me for a long time and I definitely would want to ask him about that. Yeah. Do you enjoy doing what you do now mostly, which is devoting yourself for, for years at a time to a deep dive on a, a certain person or a certain subject more so than being a, a columnist day to day, week to week, and and always being able to to pump something out, but not being able to do it in the same depth that you can with a book? I do. My main problem with being a sport, the, lever, the reason I left Sports Illustrated back in like 2003 is I just couldn't watch like Cubs Brewers anymore. I could just... <laughs> I just lost the passion. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people who don't have that passion. I actually envy it. I didn't have it. So being having to have a take, let's say I was like an LA Times columnist or an Orange County Register columnist and having to have a take on Lakers, Bucks. <laughs> I just don't, I don't think I have that in me anymore, but I do mm-hmm. love history and I love tracking things down. I like the idea. I know it sounds corny, but like I really felt this with my USFL book a few years ago. I like the idea that there was this league called the USFL that people had forgotten and you write a book and all of a sudden, this sounds dumb, but like you're on Morning Joe talking to people about a league that no one has thought of in years. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I dig that. And I feel that way with Bo Jackson too. Like my number one thing is, I love that I'm talking, I was on the Today Show talking about Bo Jackson and that maybe there's somebody watching that show who's either like, oh my God, Bo Jackson, I hadn't thought of him. Or some kid who's like, mom, is that true? Did he do that? Dad, did he do that? I live for that shit. I really do. Mm -hmm. It's not about... I'm happy I get to make a living doing this. I don't care if someone takes it out from the library or doesn't even read it. It just sparks interest in the subject. Uh, For me, that's money. I love that. Yeah. It's funny. I was just talking to Ian Arujo, who operates a, a very popular TikTok account where he tries to identify the sports games in footage of the background of, of sitcoms or other shows. Oh, right? wow. And, yeah. and he was telling me that... The USFL is is very popular often when you see a football scene just on someone's TV in another show that's just supposed to be part of the scenery. He's found that it is very often the USFL. It is 98% of the time the USFL. I wrote about that in my book because- um, Yeah, not news to you, yeah. No, but it's crazy how much- I remember like maybe three years ago, I was watching an episode of Friday Night Lights and I'm such a loser. I'm watching it and they're watching TV, they're watching football. And I'm like, Jacksonville Bowl, Chicago Blitz. 1984. Oh, my God. You know, like my family's like, get a life, man. Just get a life. (laughs) All right. Last question. We ran through some hypotheticals. I didn't even get into the hip because uh, I I was imagining that in this baseball only hypothetical, maybe he never hurts the hip or, you know, maybe if it's a degenerative condition, it it could have happened anyway. But maybe he doesn't have the, the severe hip injury that really derailed his career. But You do address that. You do talk to some people about how that injury would have been treated today and and how it would have hampered him. So for anyone who was wondering about that particular hypothetical, could you share what you learned? Yeah. I mean, when he hurt the hip in 91 and then he had the hip replacement in 92 and the hip he received 
This isn't like an exaggeration. The hip he received was the same hip your grandma Norma would be getting at the, you know, community center in Sunrise Lakes. You know, like it was like, it was made of plastic. It had metal bolts. It was meant to sustain an elderly person, you know, walking, playing shuffleboard. You could do all that stuff. Take a swim in the pool, have the buffet, the early bird buffet, but it wasn't meant for a professional athlete. And the metal bolts would rub against the plastic hip and little plastic shards would fall off into your body. So he played two full major league seasons on your grandma's artificial hip, which is one of the great under-discussed achievements in pro sports history. And Andy Murray, the tennis player, had a very similar injury to Bo Jackson, except this happened in maybe 2018. And he had a modern hip replacement. And I interviewed the doctor who did it. He said it's a completely different operation now. The technology is better. The materials are better. And Bo Jackson never would have been able to play football again because if someone hits the hip, that's, a, that's no good. But maybe instead of running a, let's say at that point he was running a 4-4, maybe he's running a 4-5. But he has the same speed, the same power, the same flexibility. It's just a tiny bit reduced. So if that injury happens today, it's a totally different story. Right. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. Yeah. All right. Well, go get the book. It's called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. I appreciate the economy of the subtitle there compared to <laughs> the one for the oh bad guys win. <laughs> Which I can't. It's always a bad sign when you have a book and you don't know your own subtitle. But I do not know. <laughs> Wait, a season of brawling, boozing, bimbo chasing, and champions in baseball with Doc, Mookie, Nails, the kid. And the rest of the something, I don't know. Anyway. Yep, yeah. There's uh, been a lot of inflation or expansion in the subtitles of sports books in general. And uh, you're one of the culprits, I think, but not in this case. That was my editor. Game. I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, no, <laughs> that book's still my bestseller though. So I can't, I can't complain too much. All right. Well, go to jeffperlman.com for more information. We will link to everywhere you can get the book. You can find Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Again, The Last Folk Hero. Go get it. Just do not ask Bo Jackson to autograph it. All right. Thanks very much to James, Ian, and Jeff. I enjoyed all of those conversations. I promised you a baseball news brief to end this episode. So here it is. Williams Astadio reportedly has signed with the SoftBank Hawks of NPB. He is going to Japan. I am happy for him in the sense that I assume this was financially rewarding for him and he can expect to get more playing time than he got in the majors. But I remain disappointed that he didn't get more playing time in the majors. I still think he could be a passable major league player, at least a replacement level major league player, maybe better. Remember in AAA in the Marlins organization this year, he hit 307, 371, 541. That's a 140 WRC plus and 315 plate appearances. I will note that the steamer projection system does give him a 106 WRC plus for 2023. And look, he could be back. Perhaps his game will play well in NPB and he will earn a return trip to the big leagues, or maybe he won't want to. But if this does close the book on Williams Astadio's major league career, he left us with a lot of memories, a lot of memes, and he did what we hoped he would do. He played in 190 games, 588 plate appearances, so essentially a full season's worth of plate appearances. He walked in 1.9% of his plate appearances. He struck out in 4.8%, and he hit 16 home runs. So I don't know that we ever promised he'd be good at baseball. We just promised that he would be the anti three true outcomes player, that he would not walk and that he would not strike out. And he didn't do those things at a historic rate. So, so long, Williams. We hope you'll be back. But one way or another, thank you for the memories. And of course, we will keep tabs on how he plays for SoftBank. In possibly bigger news outside of this podcast, 
There was Astro's front office intrigue, which we hinted at the other day and weeks or months ago. There had been reports of friction between Astro's owner Jim Crane and GM James Click. And clearly, there was some fire beneath the smoke there, because after the World Series, Crane extended a one-year offer to Dusty Baker to return as manager, and Dusty accepted. But at his age, that wasn't so extraordinary. However, Crane also extended a one-year offer to James Click, whose contract had expired. And that was extraordinary. A World Series-winning GM getting a one-year offer. That would be unusual for any GM, really. So that was clearly a, hey, we'll technically extend an offer here. So you can't say we didn't, but we will make it so insulting that you will not want to stay. So clearly a clash between Crane and Click. And now the GM who took over for Jeff Luno and continued to steer the team to success. He's a free agent. I'm sure he'll land somewhere. The Rays actually just hired John Daniels, formerly of the Rangers, as a senior advisor. It's not a great time, perhaps, to be available on the GM market, but I'm sure there will be interest in Click. And there's lots of speculation about what the Astros will do. I don't think they would bring back Jeff Lunau, but David Stearns, as we mentioned, of the Brewers, may be more available than he was before, former Astros executive. The Astros also, by the way, fired assistant GM Scott Powers, whom Click had hired earlier this year. So between that and Azacampo leaving and Pete Patilla leaving, a lot of turnover in the front office of an organization that just won a World Series and has been immensely successful lately. Quite unusual. Was Crane meddling too much? Did he and Click just not get along? I'm sure more reporting will emerge. And there have been some signings. The Dodgers reportedly re-signed Clayton Kershaw, or are about to, for a one-year, roughly $20 million deal. All is right with the world. Clayton Kershaw should be a Dodger forever, and he should also keep playing Major League Baseball. And the Padres re-signed Robert Suarez to a fairly lucrative contract, five years, $46 million. So we can get into qualifying offers and the start of free-for-all free agency next week, and maybe we'll do our MLB trade rumors over under draft when Meg is back. The only other notable baseball thing I wanted to mention here is that FTX, the crypto exchange, declared bankruptcy on Friday, supposedly one of the more reliable crypto exchanges. And this is baseball relevant because just last year, MLB and FTX formed the first ever global sports league hyphen cryptocurrency exchange partnership, proclaimed the press release. A new long-term global partnership, possibly not as long-term as initially believed. Of course, it's not just MLB that was in bed with FTX. Lots of sports leagues were sponsored by FTX, tons of naming rights. But those FTX patches that the umpires have been wearing, who knows whether we will see those again. And I guess this is not great news for Shohei Otani, who was a spokesperson for FTX, a global ambassador. And according to his press release last November... Mr. Otani will receive all of his compensation in equity and cryptocurrencies, illustrating his strong belief in both FTX and the crypto industry. I thought it was amusing that Emma Bachelary, friend of the show, resurfaced a quote from one of her articles about crypto being everywhere in sports. This was from this February, quote, The traditional stodginess of umpires might have otherwise seemed like an odd choice for a hot industry like crypto, but that safety was exactly the appeal. For MLB's part, its chief revenue officer, Noah Garden, says the league did its due diligence and determined that FTX was a company, quote, set up to sustain for the future. They were a company that stood for integrity. If you think of what the umpire stands for in our game, it's integrity. And so if you're going to put a brand on an umpire, you know, technology aside for a second, it has to be something that is complementary to the person you're putting that on. So that's where this really came together. 
Speaking of umpires, I saw a report that MLB is going to put Robot Umps, ABS, the automated ball strike system, in all 30 AAA parks in 2023. Some games will be just Robot Umps, some games will be the challenge system. So they are clearly building up to the big league rollout. And last thing before the pass blast, I wanted to read an interesting email we got from listener JR about times through the order in the 2022 World Series. JR wrote, I found a rather startling fun fact. Just 37 batters in the 2022 World Series faced the starting pitcher a third time through the order, and 11 of them ended up scoring. This in a series where only 40 runs were scored total across all 436 plate appearances. Starters facing hitters a third time through the order allowed a 1,200 OPS, while relievers held hitters to a 507 OPS. And he notes the series is littered with examples of games shifting in the batting team's favor, at least temporarily, when facing the starter for a third time. Of course, Game 1, Justin Verlander, Walk Kyle Schwarber, Real Muto hit a two-run double to tie the game. Astros lost that game. Game 2, Wheeler faced Altuve, who singled, and Bregman, who homered, put the Phillies down 5 nothing. He goes on to list examples in each of the following games. And so he concludes, it makes you wonder whether in future series teams in close games will always pull the starter after they face the lineup twice and try to load their bullpens with enough guys who can pitch the rest of the way. He also includes a PS, relievers did allow a 11-21 OPS while facing hitters for the fourth time in the series, but that's a tiny 11-plate appearance sample, and almost all of the damage was Jordan Alvarez's Game 6 homer off of Jose Alvarado. JR speculates that the goal going forward will be a 7-pitcher bullpen, plus someone available to pitch in extras, that can pitch 4 innings in all 7 games with no one having to face the top or bottom of the lineup more than 2 or 3 times. Not far-fetched. I will link to his data, but thanks for the research. And that brings us to the Pass Blast. This is episode 1928, and so this Pass Blast comes from 1928. And from Jacob Pomranke, Sabres Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. The headline, 1928, ahead of his time. Jacob writes, in 1928, National League President John Hadler made a splash at the winter meetings by proposing what he called the 10-man rule, an early version of the designated hitter. The Boston Globe was one of many newspapers that mocked his plan, writing, Mr. Hadler's plan to excuse pitchers from batting and let each team name a man before the game who would bat for the pitcher would help a little, although it would be better not to name the batter and just let the people guess about him as they do in football. What really should be done is to have 30 or 40 players sitting on the sidelines of the baseball field and completely covered with woolen horse blankets so nobody can recognize them. It should be permissible for a manager to send in these substitutes at any period of the game and for any position. Mr. Hadler is smart enough to see that the trouble with baseball is that it is too easily understood. The success of football from a financial standpoint is due to the fact that at no time is the public allowed to understand what is going on down there on the playing field. Jacob concludes the idea of a DH first surfaced in the 1880s, but this was the first time anyone with any power in baseball circles had made a serious proposal, but Hadler was before his time. It took another 45 years before the American League finally adopted the DH rule in 1973. Hadler's league, the NL, took nearly a century before allowing the DH in its games. In their defense, the need for the DH wasn't quite as acute 100 years ago-ish when pitchers could handle the bat a bit better relative to the league, but it was clear even then that pitchers were not really qualified major league hitters. We just had to wait a while. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free. Rafael Palomino, Cameron Paleologopoulos, Hope Corain, Michael Hathaway, and Mark Olinger. Thanks to all of you. 
Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, monthly bonus episodes, discounts on merch, ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and more. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild thanks to dylan higgins for his editing and production assistance we hope you have a wonderful weekend and meg and i will be back to talk to you early next week tell me what would you do oh terrible favor